are you doing? How was your bicycling? Did you survive? It What's was... going on? Every Sunday, if my father wants to mountain bike, I'm going with him. He's 82 and he loves mountain biking with his e-bike. And we went to some valley and it was wonderful. Oh, bless his age. Wow. <laughs> wonderful, amazing. We did 77 kilometers, 800 meters up. Fantastic. And on the way back, there was a traffic jam and we spent one hour, 30 minutes waiting for the fire department to clear an accident. And I came home three minutes before the podcast was, uh, the report was supposed to start. And sorry, guys, I was from top to bottom full of mud, sweat and sun cream <laughs> and a lot of uh, dust. And I was like, I have to shower. I have to eat a little piece of bread and drink a lot. And please excuse it that I was late. Um, you are actually easy, easy. <laughs> yes, there were people waiting and I'm saying, excuse me, sorry, will not happen again. Next time I will go with my bike and leave my dad alone in the car. <laughs> the only question, as you know, which is always relevant uh, right at the beginning of the title talk is, have you fed the cat? I came in the door and there was a really angry cat waiting for me because 5 p.m. is the moment she gets her food. And today at 5 p.m. I went into, I entered the car to drive back home for an hour and came back at 7.25. And now she's fat. Now she lies on the balcony. Now she's calm and relaxed. And she won't bother us for two, three hours because then she wants the next food dose. So... <laughs> Sorry, guys, okay. again, and I know people sent me questions to answer in the Maria report, and I was like, I will read them when I'm at home in the bathtub, and I took a shower, so I have no idea what this Easy, is. we can run it. We, we'll, we'll we, we put, we put, we, we made a very easy, uh, well, I say, it was easy for me to understand, uh, probably not easy for everyone else, but we have a, we have a, a start, a middle, and an end, Thomas, it's fine. We, we've got it. Okay. I'm going to post a picture um now in my twitter of the lake we went to so people can see that it's stunning it's beautiful and it, it was really i was really up there so uh, yeah this is the reason i'm late to the maria report everybody sorry all right the good thing is the dog david the dog did not steal his homework all is good all righty let's do the following thomas um uh -huh. We would love to start. We would love to start with a wrap up of the NATO summit uh -huh. because everybody has discussed it in quite some detail. But let's break down what are the key takeaways. What is really important? What is the lasting impact? And how do you see it? For so the first thing, um, right now, the thing is that people are angry at NATO that NATO didn't give Ukraine a timetable when it can join. The problem is, the devil is in the details. If you give Ukraine a timetable, you have to make a starting point. What would that be? If the war ends, yes. But if the war ends and not all territory of Ukraine is liberated, what then? Will Ukraine join with this timetable if all territory is liberated? Okay, but there's small islands opposite Kerch where the Russians built a causeway to annex them to Russia. Will the war end if these small islands are liberated or not? Because if you want to fight Russia for those small islands, Ukraine has to do, Ukrainians have to do an amphibious landing and the Russians can just drive along the causeway. So, or do you end the war if there's a peace treaty between Russia and Ukraine? Yes, that could be 70 years because the Russians still refuse 
to sign a peace treaty with Japan since World War II. So when um, do you start that timetable? So people were angry about that and I didn't comment on that and I didn't really um, say anything because I understood that the devil is in the detail. If you give a timetable, the question is when will you start? What date? What is the point and what you will start? And then maybe it turns out that you agreed with Ukraine. Ukrainian um, admission to NATO starts when the war ends and the war ends with a peace treaty, but there are still some small parts of Ukraine that Russia occupies, and then you have a problem because then Ukraine joins NATO on this the timetable, and then Ukraine decides to liberate those last pieces that Russia still occupies. What then? If there's a war between Ukraine and uh, Russia then, but Ukraine attacked, will NATO be dragged in? And you can tell that there were quite a few European governments who didn't know how to answer those details. And one North American government. So it was not North American, at least two, three European governments. And that's why Ukraine got this nonsensical, idiotic statement that it will be a NATO member in the future. But beyond that, we don't say anything. So I understand why there's no timetable. I also understand why Ukraine is angry about that. Uh, the I mean, Ukraine could have said, okay, guys, listen, we will join NATO when we have a ceasefire with Russia. And if Russia still occupies territory, then we will never try to recover it by force so we can join NATO. Ukraine couldn't do that. So the details of when to start a timetable, under what conditions, what was derailed the Ukrainian wish for a fixed timetable for NATO membership. So I have not once commented on that because I understand where the European governments are coming from. I understand why Ukraine is upset. And this is one of those things where you have to make an, a rotten compromise. Ukraine would have to accept to give up territory like those, those islands. The name of the island is Tuzla Island, Tuzla Spit, because it's, not, it's just a sandbank that is above water. And as long as Ukraine controls the Tuzla Spit, the Kerch Strait is a Ukrainian waterway because there's Ukraine on both sides. If Russia retains the Tuzla Spit, then the Kerch Strait becomes international waterway because there's two countries on both sides. And Ukraine loses a lot of rights to control shipping and impose customs and impose, you know, uh, duties and controls. So can Ukraine give this piece of Ukraine up for NATO membership? Maybe. But can Zelensky agree to that? No. And NATO would demand that Ukraine never try to take it back unless Russia gives it back. Will Russia give it back? Obviously never, because the Russians even tried to annex Tuzla spit already in 2003. You can imagine when Ukraine and Russia were still friends, under Putin, they already tried to grab that piece of land so that they can control half of the Kerch Strait. So this was, uh, yeah. There was they never, can't give it away. 
They, yes, they that's the point. Cannot, they cannot give agency to Russia and they can't give this away. Yep. And it's also, uh, there is good advice from both the FBI as well as various um, agencies in Europe that they should never give this away because it would allow, therefore, in future, the Russian mafia to constantly Rostov, uh, use Rostov on Donya in the same way as they couldn't use possibly um, Novorossiysk. Because that's yep. the thing, as you just said, the controls, the controls of the waterway give yep. police control, which matters a great deal for smuggling of drugs from mm -hmm. various bad places out of Rostov. And Rostov is where the mafia of Krasnodar sits pretty. And this is where they founded it. And this is where Putin's power is traced back to. The problem is that, you know... Um... If Ukraine makes a rotten compromise, Zelensky would have gotten into trouble in Ukraine. If NATO would have made a rotten compromise, then they would have derailed the whole thing. You know, Ukraine can join when the war ends and then there's not all territory liberated. So um, disappointment on the Ukrainian side, but I didn't expect to ever get a timetable out of the NATO summit. And honestly, I was hoping for a lot, a lot more weapons for Ukraine in the summit, because that is what is needed right now and what will help Ukraine. And Thank you for saying this, Thomas. Yeah. Thank you for and saying this, because this is the, the symbols do not matter as much as the weapons. Yeah. I mean, if you tell me that Ukraine has now the Ukraine NATO Council, nice, but I would prefer a thousand long-range missiles. You have uh, um, NATO now an agreement with Ukraine for it. I think it's in digital um, data sharing or something that is good helps ukraine but i would rather have something to sink russian submarines so um weapons are nice nato membership is symbolic because nato cannot deny ukraine membership in the future it just can't impossible um, insisting on a timetable was a wish from the ukrainians you know to show to Russia that there's no way that Ukraine will ever, ever again be a neutral country or a country between two blocks. It will be in the West, what does Ukrainian wish? But there was no way that, for example, big country in Europe, in the middle of Europe, was against it because they just couldn't define a starting point where you are sure Ukraine can join. And since you don't know when this war ends and how it ends, uh, how do you define the moment where the timetable begins? And so honestly, I was hoping for more Abrams tanks. I was hoping that the United States just stopped being a little petulant child and hands over Tecums. Which, by the way, the Pentagon says it has 800 Tecums missiles. And it's lying. It has something like 3,000. But 2,000-something are in the Korean peninsula together with the Koreans as a war reserve to hit the North Korean missile and artillery positions and depots and ammo um, um, storage sites and so on. And the United States is not going to part with that. And those 800, the United States says it needs for fighting Russia. Good. Give it to Ukraine. You're fighting Russia through Ukraine. So... I would have wished for much more weapons for Ukraine at this NATO summit rather than some squabbling about when do we start a timetable, which is 
irrelevant right now for the front. You don't save a single soldier's life by having a fixed timetable. But 50 more Bradleys, that helps. Yeah. How do you contrast the uh, rather in comprehensive level of cautiousness uh, the White House, uh, after seeing Mr. Sullivan has reasserted himself, having had a little um, home invasion beforehand, and having lost his compatriot, Mr. Carl, at the um, DOD just recently, I mean, on the 7th of July, to be exact. Um, how do you contrast the U European commitments on the day of, on the days of, of, of the Vilnius summit with what the Americans didn't do? Isn't this quite surprising, actually? I think the Americans were quite angry with the tweet that Zelensky put out because um, it was a quite demanding tone. And you can tell that the United States National Security Council is very worried about this timetable because if you give a timetable, the United States would have to stick to it. But if the beginning of a timetable is wobbly and not clearly defined, there's a huge risk the Senate or the next president will not play along, which damages, damages the United States reputation then and will massively disappoint the Ukrainians. So it was better to not have a timetable and wait for the end of the war in whatever form it comes and, you know, I didn't really look at the NATO summit because I just wanted to figure out what they are giving to Ukraine in ammunition and in weapons, because that's it was counts. And the squabbling behind the scenes, I hear from the Poles that the United States were angry and the Poles were incensed with the Germans and the French as always were trying to surrender a little bit and the Baltics were furious and the Romanians were demanding. And the Italians didn't care. And the Spanish were like, whatever, we will sign, just make a document. And the British were furiously for Ukraine and the Scandinavians. So I hear all this information, you know. And the thing is, um, that doesn't help Ukraine. What, what Ukraine helps is not 100,000 cluster munition shells, the cluster munition shells like now. Ukraine needs half a million cluster munition shells right now. So all this politics, I, I, it's politics. It's not helping. It's just, you know, capitals being capitals. Okay, then let's wrap this up with one thing. The, the one item, and Dorman, David, I, others, Marcus, everybody, we here discussed it in detail. We followed, of course, the summit mm -hmm. and reported on it. But the one thing I would have personally uh, liked to see there is the the word invite, which they snug in quite neatly. Uh, uh -huh. Who did it and how they did it? But the word, the symbol of being invited, uh -huh. could have been stated more pr uh, prominently. That would have probably papered over this item, um, this this constant badgering for a timeline, because the timeline evidently cannot be easily given without handing over the agency to the Russians. But the yep. other part is that when they didn't say this, and this is a pity, and I, I dislike the, the, the statement that Mr. Sullivan made on stage in the public forum, where he then said that this, you know, um, that Ukrainian accession to NATO uh, would be far further into the future. That's the gist of it. 
that did not help. This deferral notice was beyond yep. anything which was discussed. So very cautious, no additional deliveries of Abrams, not a significant commitment of ammunition, no production uh, of, for example, the little details which you and we discussed here many times that, for example, that there would have been a commitment to say, okay, we send another 800 pieces from Oshkosh across, yep. or we release from one of the pre-positioned stocks, we release more M777s, we release more APCs, or we have uh, 250 uh, Bradleys we're going to send you. A prominent, solid statement of equipment alongside the word, we invite you, was missing, whilst the council, and there's the process note, the typical thing, Europeans are used to this, our American audience may not have this, but Europeans, as you said at the beginning, are very mm -hmm. well versed as to how the EU operates, how NATO operates, procedure, process, rules, in order to move things forward. The NATO-Ukraine Council, as opposed to the previous NUC, the uh, Commission, uh -huh. is exactly this. It is essentially a formal invitation. It just doesn't say so. Yep. The thing is that you could. Um, the thing is, you could have made a statement, but you know. Um, I have to criticize Zelensky. Zelensky went public with a demand that NATO couldn't give. And the Ukrainian people expected then that NATO would give in. And NATO couldn't give in. There was absolutely no unanimity about giving Ukraine a fixed timetable. And then came the disappointment because there were high expectations, unrealistic expectations even, and those were not met. And if more, diplom more diplomacy, you know, you could have petered it out in behind closed door and said, okay, how do we spin it? But you couldn't spin it anymore after that. And that was a... <sighs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I mean, there, Zelensky hasn't, once, hasn't done a single step wrong since this war began. And here I have to say, from a standpoint of... Uh, what would help Ukraine, the timetable and the demand for it wasn't that Zelensky should have said, you know, I will be quiet. I will not want the timetable, but I demand attack camps as a compensation would have been much better. Uh, so, yeah, I don't want to criticize the Ukrainians too much because they are fighting for their lives and for their nation and for their people. And let's put it this way. I personally wouldn't have it done this way. I understand why the Ukrainians had a demand and high expectations because they are fighting for all of NATO, keeping all of Europe safe. So we are having here a nice chat and discussion and have, I can mountain bike and you people at the night Sunday because Ukrainians are bleeding to secure our security here and our peace. So yes, they had high expectations and they demanded recognition for their suffering and their sacrifices, and it was not given. So I understand fully the disappointment and why they wanted it. Uh, militarily, I, I can always say, only say, fuck NATO. Ukraine needs more weapons. NATO cannot give any weapon. NATO is an organization that exists only a bureaucracy and a lot of commands, and those commands have no troops, no equipment, no material. Those commands only get equipment and material if NATO is attacked and the member nations give to the Supreme Allied Commander or Allied Land Command or Allied Air Command 
units. So what Ukraine needs is bilateral agreements with France, Spain, Germany to get the fuck off their asses and start to produce more weapons. Because let's be honest, how many European countries have decided to increase their fleet of tanks since the Russian war began to better defend themselves and to better help Ukraine? One, Poland. Same goes for infantry fighting vehicles. Only Poland has increased production and started to produce more so it can give more to Ukraine and it can defend itself better. Artillery, it's a bit better because Lithuania has bought more artillery and uh, Slovakia buys more artillery and Czechia will buy more and Poland will buy more and Sweden will buy more and England, buy, uh, United Kingdom buys more. But fighter jets, there's not a single order for fighter jets in Europe. Nothing. The only thing they produce is artillery ammunition and equipment for infantry, the Europeans to give to Ukraine. Nothing else. I mean, if, if this, the Europeans just haven't understood it, air defense systems, the Germans, the Norwegians are building air defense systems like crazy to give to Ukraine. Hallelujah. How many more Patriot batteries has the United States ordered to give to Ukraine? Zero. How many HIMARS have been ordered to give to Ukraine? Zero. How many uh, helicopters have been ordered to give to Ukraine? Zero. So the Ukrainians need more weapons and the Europeans, this whole timetable thing is not the main issue. The main issue is that the Europeans are still way too stingy and too lazy and too complacent to understand that our factories must run like the factories during the Cold War. We are producing maybe 50, 60 main battle tanks in Europe a year right now. During the Cold War, the Europeans produced 600. Do we need 600? No. But we need at least 300 to replenish our own militaries and at the same time give Ukraine what it needs. Because what we have learned from Ukraine is the Leopard 2 A7, A6 is one of the best battle tanks. And like in World War II, anti-tank mines are what stops tanks. Because the tank is armored incredibly well and the crew will survive direct hits and the crew will survive almost everything. But when there's an anti-tank mine, the tracks, they don't survive. The tracks will be destroyed by the anti-tank mine. The tank is immobilized. The crew has to get out and run away to save their lives. In the United States military, they have replacement tanks. So if the crew survives, it goes back to base and into the next tank and returns on the attack. Not a single European country has spares and replacement tanks. None. Nobody is buying them. The Italian military is now deciding to modernize its tanks. It needs 108 for its two main tank battalions. It needs 13 for the uh, military, the cavalry school where the tankers are being trained. So it's 121 
and they're buying 125. The amount of spares is four. It's a complete disaster. You cannot give Ukraine anything. You, can, you have no spares. I mean, the whole European military is still, the governments are still all completely delusional about the future of this continent. And so people talking about Ukraine, the real issue is that NATO would have had to go to this summit and decree that every member who doesn't spend 2% on defense gets kicked out. And countries like Germany or the Netherlands who cannot spend 2% on defense because they don't meet their recruiting goals, they have personal problems, have to put the money they can spend into a central NATO fund, which then buys weapons in Europe for countries like Romania or Italy or Spain who have no problems with personal recruitment but have massive problems with buying enough weapons because their government budgets are strained. Or countries like the Baltics, small countries, very willing to defend themselves, highly motivated to fight. They can't buy battle tanks. It's way too expensive for them. So like Denmark already did, Denmark announced they will spend 2% on defense from this year, next year, and so on. And every single piece of money that cannot be spent on the uh, Danish defense, uh, um, on the Navy, on the Air Force, on the Army, every Danish kroner that cannot be spent on Denmark's defense units and military will be spent for weapons for Ukraine. Correct path, Germany, Netherlands, other countries that have lots of money, Finland, Canada, if they cannot meet the recruitment goals in their country, they need still to spend 2% and have to hand over that money to Ukraine or to countries like Romania or Poland or the Baltics that want to fight and need money to buy more equipment. That is what NATO should have been discussing, not timetables. But everybody wants to discuss the timetable because that was was in the public. And that's honestly, no general cares about a timetable. Generals in Ukraine want to know when will the Europeans goddamn start producing infantry fighting vehicles for Ukraine. There are six factories that could produce infantry fighting vehicles for Ukraine, which would save Ukrainian lives. And you would still need hundreds because lots of them will be damaged and lose tracks and will be immobilized, but they will save the crew. You need hundreds. There are six factories and all of them are idle because the only order in Europe for infantry fighting vehicles in production is 54 for Hungary. And you know, the Hungarians are assholes. They will never give anything to Ukraine. So people are completely wrong about what they are discussing. Timetable irrelevant. Production of weapons for Ukraine and for other European nations is what has to be discussed, what should be the main discussion. So when people always ask me, comment on the timetable and NATO not inviting Ukraine, it's like the house is burning and you're deciding. I'm sorry, wait, let's formulate it less aggressive. Sorry. I'm getting emotional because as a soldier myself, I know how it is when you fight with shitty equipment. And you don't get good equipment because your country is too poor. So let's formulate it differently. The house is burning. 
discussing timetable is discussing garden design. And what I want to know is when is the fire department coming? Does the fire department have enough hoses and enough personnel? And who is going into the house to save the people? So please, people, let's not discuss anymore the timetable. It's irrelevant because right now, there's, we have been speaking for 30 minutes. Ukraine is approximately losing 100 people a day at the front. That's an estimate, approximately 100 per day. We have been speaking here. So while we were speaking, four or five Ukrainian soldiers have died for lack of equipment, for lack of artillery, for lack of infantry fighting vehicles, for lack of mine clearing vehicles. All the discussion about timetables kills, while discussions about producing more equipment saves lives. And I get emotional because every Ukrainian loss is our, we are guilty. It's our conscience of Europeans and Americans for not, the United States has much more it could give to Ukraine. The Europeans could produce much more if they would start really to open their factories to full production circles. It's not happening. So what, what timetable? What does a timetable save right now in Ukrainian lives? None. Germany going out there and saying, we will start produ producing Puma infantry fighting vehicles for Ukraine. Yes, they're pricey, but I guarantee you, a Puma, German-made Puma can be hit by 20 Lancer drones and the crew and the troops inside will all be fine. It can be hit by five anti-tank guided missiles everyone inside will survive. That is what I want to see. Western modern equipment, not our old stores, the, the rest that we don't know what to do anyway, sending to Ukraine. So, um, and again, I'm emotional. I know a lot of Ukrainians. I was a soldier myself. I know how this is. It doesn't matter a timetable for a soldier at the front. That's a very good point. Thomas, would you allow me if I uh, were to bring in our Ukrainian friend Wardogo into this? Wardogo. Ah, yes, please, please. Sorry. I no, muted my microphone. My, my error. <laughs> All good. Wardogo, please shoot. Go ahead, Wardogo. Yeah, he has a connection issue. All righty. Well, then we'll continue until Wardogo has recovered because I thought that it would fit perfectly into this. I agree with you, Thomas. We discussed this many times over. We should be sending them not hand-me-downs, but we should be sending them a uh, key kit, which currently, by the way, the most recent version, the, so to say, post-Puma version of German-produced, German-manufactured IFEs went to which country? Hungary. Exactly. And uh, it's going to Australia, likely, and it's going to be produced for the United States. But the country that needs it most isn't getting any. And this is where the frustration, which and this closes, I think, the circle and is our wrap for the NATO summit, which is why it is understandable that this massive amount of frustration is there, because uh, the Ukrainians are smart enough to understand that there is this um, indecisiveness, dithering, and... Uh, Strange logistics planning. Wardogo, you waved. Do you have better access now? Yes, I apologize. I had some troubles with the with the internet connection. Look, Tony, uh, all good. Carry on. What what just Thomas said? First of all, thank you so much so much for being here for that kind of 
uh, interesting discussion in a way that if me you said that you cannot blame ukrainians because they're uh spending their lives and spending their blood uh in, in defense of including the european security and uh, the same i cannot blame being ukrainian i cannot blame the europeans and, and, and nato countries overall because so much what's already done and the critics that that, that you do i mean i don't feel that comfortable to, to, to share the same view at least to voice the same view even if my feeling are are the same because my feeling of this nato summit was like you know the meeting where nobody have prepared to and everybody have been discussing its own agenda not being agreed up front what we can deliver what is achievable what is not achievable that's my take from the first day what i've heard ukrainian president discussing and unfortunately like it was so far in fact from what was able uh what was the possibility to 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 achieve as an as an agreement as a as a help so far and so on mm. and mm, i hope that the things about the missing commitments on the different equipment the capacity production capacity uh, extension plus increasing the, the 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 quantity of different equipment that might bring might 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 be brought brought to ukraine that's something that left behind the curtains and we just know i only hope for that my always lifestyle is hope for the best prepare for the worst and like like the best going to be a good surprise right and that that's why i don't feel like frustrated or something like from from this from from this summit happening because so many things already happened but in parallel having all of the hype in the media related to russian massive production of modern equipment not modern equipment as we know it but in russian understanding modern modern equipment but those for instance lancets they really work unfortunately they are the danger for ukrainian soldiers and for the equipment yes they are not that capable as many others but still in some sense they do the job and in this background hearing that there is no agreement to increase the production capacity and sharing some uh, production to Ukraine, that's really something that, that feels worrying. Not the timelines, as you said, not the commitment of NATO. I heard, like, <laughs> to get into the NATO, you need to win the war, and we will help you to win the war. But to help you to win the war, this is something that was missing on this meeting, on this summit, and it was always as long as it will take. And that's the expression that we hate uh, all around here in the space, all it will, uh, as long as it will take, right? That's my take. I apologize uh, for, again, for the internet bat at the very beginning, but that's my feeling. I really share. Thank you so much. Haksama from Ukraine. No Thank you very much, Bordogo. Uh, I would like to say some things. The problem is that the countries need to decide on their own to spend more money to help Ukraine. So, for example, the German government decided to throw an immense amount of money at air defense systems. And they're spending billions, billions on air defense systems, the German now for Ukraine. And no one in Europe can order an IRIS-T system because the entire production line has doubled in output and is going all to Ukraine. 
that is exactly how it should be. The problem is, this is just one example. The Norwegians have gone completely overboard too and are producing like crazy NASAMS systems for Ukraine. No one can get one because all of them are going to Ukraine. And the Czechs, their tank factories are refurbishing every single T-72 that they can get their hands on. And the United States and the Netherlands and Canadians and the Brits are buying T-72s all over Africa to bring to the Czech Republic and refurbish them with modern thermal cameras and better armor for Ukraine. But the thing is, there's gigantic tank factories in Europe that are idle. Santa Barbara Blindados in Spain, nothing. French, Nexter, the tank factories, nothing. Italy, I live very close to the tank factory in Bolzano. I see it from home. They're on strike because there's not enough business for them. Seriously? And I mean, that's a tank factory that during the Cold War produced 300 tanks and infantry fighting vehicles a year. Nothing. And the thing is that Italy doesn't have the money. But you know, like the Czechs didn't have the money, but then the Canadians... The Danish, the Dutch, the Germans, the British and the Americans said, okay, you Czechs don't have the money. We give you the tanks, we give you the money, and you will refurbish them. So the problem is that a country, let's say like Norway, which is the richest country in Europe and has factories that can make uh, submarines with German help, corvettes, lots of missiles, and they can make some... Uh, air defense system that Norway should say, okay, listen, Italy, your tank factory, start production immediately of CV-90 or Leopard 2A7s uh, for Ukraine. We Norwegians will pay. Then Italy could start a production. So you, you need to have the rich countries with the money come in and tell the countries like Spain or Italy or France or also Bulgaria, Romania, which have completely idle defense factories that they need to get their shit together and countries which have more money like Luxembourg also not that not that much money in total but you know there's some very rich country that they have to spend some money Iceland okay it's just a few millions but you know at least that helps to buy a one tank for Ukraine and there needs to be a NATO procurement agency or czar or organizer who during World War II, George C. Marshall and then different offices in the Pentagon got the United States industry to outproduce the entire rest of the world in equipment for the military. So the British military, the free French divisions, the free Greek divisions, most of the Yugoslav partisans formation, the free Italian divisions, the uh, free Norwegian brigades, the large part of the Soviet forces, the free Polish divisions, the, all these units, the Jewish brigade got American equipment or British equipment that was produced in Canada with American help. And that way the United States outproduced the Nazis. And in the Cold War, the United States outproduced the Soviets. What people forget, the armies of Europe, 
between 1950 and 1990, an immense amount of their equipment was American made and the United States can just like, take it, it's free. Because we want you to be ready if there's a war to fight the Soviets with the best possible equipment so our troops, the American troops, don't have to stand next to a division that is under-equipped or ill-equipped or doesn't have the ammunition. And the Italian military in the 80s, 60, 70% of its ammunition was a donation from the United States because United States ammunition factories produced so much ammo that every European nation that needed them. 5 million artillery shells could just tell the United States, do you want to donate us a bit of artillery ammo? The United States was like, no problemo. And it's not happening now. And we are so much more rich in Europe and we have so many more factories in Europe that could produce it and we're not doing it. And as Wardogo said, you know, the Ukrainians here, you can join NATO when the war is over and we will help you win the war. That's nice. So where are the tank factories making a tank a day? Oh, in South Korea. But they're making it for South Korea only. Oh, and for Poland. Good. And in Europe, where's the tank factory that makes a tank a day? Hmm? Nowhere. Artillery? Nowhere. How many orders for Panzer Horbitze 2000? Zero. How many orders for Archer? Eight from the United Kingdom for itself. How many orders for Caesar? I think 54. Czech Republic, 54. More than Germany, attention. Incredible amount of artillery, the Czechs. How much in Lithuania? 18. Italy? None. Spain? None. France? None. Germany? None. And this means the Ukraine... Okay, this is a, a guess, okay? The war has lasted for 500 days the Ukrainians will have lost 50,000 soldiers until now. The Russians will have lost 200,000, but the Ukraine, we, we must not pretend that this is not a tragedy for Ukraine and that the Ukrainians haven't lost a lot of soldiers right now. If the Europeans and the Americans don't start producing so much more equipment, the Ukrainians will at some point have lost 100,000 soldiers and the war won't have ended. So timetables, I don't give a, I don't care. I want to see more heavy equipment going to Ukraine. You know, the Ukraine's F-16 training, nice. It's hand-me-downs F-16s. It's a start. You could give the Ukrainians also some older Eurofighters if you order some trench for Eurofighters. Who has done that? Only the Germans and the Spanish. But they not, they're not going to give their old tornado or old F-18 to Ukrainians. Okay. What about the UK? None. Ordered nothing. Italy ordered nothing. Has anyone ordered more Rafale for giving maybe Mirage 2000 to Ukraine? Nobody. No, nobody. Has anyone ordered more Gripen? No, no one. Has the United States ordered more F F D F-15 um, AX? No. More F-35? Nope. So, uh, at some point, the Europeans and the Americans won't have any old equipment to give to Ukraine anymore, and there's nothing new that has been produced. The, the day will come. And I see it now, and um, I mean, 
every Ukrainian loss is a tragedy, and I feel it because I know so many Ukrainians that have family and friends at the front or are refugees. And we Europeans have a nice life, and you know, um, maybe we shouldn't build new airports for a few years or new roads or have some new um, basic income stuff. Maybe we should just produce a little bit more military equipment for a few years to ensure that the Ukrainians win and thus Europe stays at peace and safe. Which brings us um, to what is actually happening at the moment. And I think we, we need to make a move towards that. Because at the moment, uh, people we have various um, parts of the long line of contact, various parts of the theatre which are important. But in recent days, yet again, as by the way, we indicated here in one of the past tyratons in one of the last sit-reps he did, uh, we discussed um, the significant concentration and build-up of Russian forces in the northeast and that they would... Uh, trying to use and exploit every opportunity which they could see to uh, resist the Ukrainians to take more territory in the direction of both Troitska and Kupanska in the northeast, as well as, of course, Svartove, which they've held thus far because nobody has made a large effort. But that their ultimate target would always be to take back their symbolic but also logistically important hub, Liman, Krasna Liman. And uh, they've been fighting harder on Kremlin. They have not made much uh, of a, a sensible, uh, say, gain there. But seemingly, they are now pushing hard again with um, significant equipment, lots of troops, whilst the Ukrainians finally have DPICM. How do you see the Northeast? Shall we walk through this a little? Just a question. First, Rus seems to have a question. If it's related to production, sure, of course. Put it in now, and before we move to the front. Please, please. Yeah, I didn't see you. I apologize, yeah. Rose. Uh, no, no, no problem. Uh, it's definitely related. Um, it's a bit of a Swedish perspective, uh, because if we're going to fix this, we need to know why it is like this. Uh, in, in Sweden, we have several major arms manufacturers. And I know that that Heglund, who makes the United and, and, and all the, the huge uh, APCs, with the track ones with two wagons, every different kind of them, uh, they have, like, they've gone from working eight hours a, a, a day to 24 hours a day. And so has Paul for making more agreements. Uh, but if there are tank factories, welding floors, in other places, why are not tables using them? It would be so much more cheaper to make them in space than making people work at night in Sweden. That is totally super expensive. Uh, so why isn't it happening? And the same thing with thought. If there are French aircraft making plants standing still, and Sobby's working 24 hours a day to make as many grippings as they, as they can. Why aren't they making them in parts? That would be cheaper. So something is wrong, and we need to know what it is wrong to, to get to the point of how it's solved. Okay. Um, 
one of the problems is that you know no defense company wants to share its construction plans unless it has agreement about you know uh, intellectual property Italy is right now negotiating a deal to buy from Germany, Rheinmetall and KMW, KMW uh, the rights to build the Leopard 2A8, which is the newest version with an active protection system. And Italy is negotiating with uh, BA Systems, that is in Sweden and in United Kingdom, a deal to license produce CV90. Mark IV, and at least try to get, you know, a limited number in and then in a second step make a national effort in Italy to produce a national infantry fighting vehicle. The problem is that there's also an offer from the Germans to produce KF-41 links in Italy instead of the CV-90. And now they're negotiating because these are billions and the government obviously has a duty to not waste money. And the two companies want to get this deal because in the end, Italy will buy 600 to 800 infantry fighting vehicles if the government finds the money and if a deal can be found with the production companies. And the thing is, the governments have to find the money and to be willing to spend it. And there's a whole bunch of European governments who don't want to spend it. Like the Germans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah, but, but there are two, two different problems here. One, the governments don't want to spend it. Yep. That, that's a hold up. But when there are orders, like for the CV-90s and for the Griffins, they produce as many as they can. And there are plans standing still. Then there is something wrong. Yep. The thing is that basically you have to tool a new factory to a new system, right? The Czechs and the Slovaks are buying CV90 and they will produce them in Czechoslovakia and they will need a year to uh, get the tools and the factory running. Um, the only European production line that could scale up rapidly is the F-35 production line because there's dozens of European companies that make parts and you could scale up in each one of them. And like with the CV-90, you have everything in Sweden. So the Czechs and the Slovaks and the Italians still have to figure out how to produce it locally, get the tools, get the machines, train the people. So, for example, the Italian tank factories, they cannot produce right now Leopard 2A8. But they can produce fresher wheeled infantry fighting vehicles. They're not as good as a Puma, a tracked infantry fighting vehicle, or as a CV-90, but they're better than anything that the Ukrainians have right now. So Italy could produce it. But, you know, one costs, I think, 7, 8 million euros. And if Italy donates that to Ukraine, they need 800 million, and Italy alone cannot finance. So the European tank factories and defense factories, someone would need to go some NATO defense procurements are and say, okay, the Spanish tank factory can build right now because they're tooling for it. Piranha, um, I think it's five or six, Mark five or six Piranha infantry fighting vehicles that are wheeled. The Spanish can produce it. They can tool it. Excellent. But the Spanish cannot finance 200 for Ukraine. 
not because they do not want it. The problem is that the Spanish have to adhere to the 3% budget deficit rule of the European Union. And if they start to spend, or also the Italians, if they start to spend billions to help Ukraine, they're above the 3% EU Eurozone deficit rule, and they have to pay fines to the European Union. And they're not willing to pay fines to the European Union because they're producing equipment for Ukraine. So it would need also the European Union to say, okay, equipment for military purposes is exempt from the 3% rule. But this requires, again, also in the European Union, someone who is responsible for military procurement and who is like, guys, we have to change some rules. And then we have to say, okay, the United Kingdom doesn't have a single tank factory anymore that works because the only one that exists produces garbage. Uh, It's Ajax. It doesn't work. After 10 years, the thing is still unworkable. I mean, it's incredible. So, okay, the United Kingdom and Canada, which is uh, completely laggard in defense spending, these two countries will give the money to Spain where there's a tank factory that can produce wheeled infantry fighting vehicles for Ukraine starting tomorrow if the money comes in. So you need coordination between the nations above nations inside NATO. To, I mean, the Turkish defense industry can produce an immense amount of equipment, but Turkey is not willing to spend billions on giving Ukraine new stuff. They're giving Ukraine the first models they built 10 years ago and a few, and they're like, we are in an economic crisis. We Turks cannot spend money, but we have a huge amount of tank factories that are idle. So Sweden could tell Turkey, you approve our membership and we give you a billion to produce equipment for Ukraine. The Turks would jump to, a, they would call their parliament back tonight at 2 a.m. to vote Sweden in if they get a billion for their defense industry. So again, it requires someone in the European Union who knows about all the defense capabilities, who is like, give the job to Ben Wallace, make, make him a NATO deputy secretary for defense procurement, and you will have in one year, the European Union will have more aircraft carriers than the rest of the world, because Ben Wallace is a former military officer. He knows every little detail. He knows exactly where he can find the stuff he needs for Ukraine. Make him NATO's procurement Make him defense procurement czar of the NATO, and it works. Yes, I think you're. I think you're right there. But I think there need to be more people than one. Obviously, he's a very good suggestion to head it, but they're going to be like need to be someone from different parts of of from basically from every country that that is involved. There has, has to be someone from Spain, from Italy, maybe Colbin from Sweden. Uh, there, 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 has, there has to be these kinds of people. That you can the European Union has the PESCO agreement. The PESCO is basically a agreement of European nations to develop and then acquire together equipment. But it's a huge drama. For example, the Europeans decided to des- develop together a European petrol corvette which can protect the European waters from enemy enemy ships and especially submarines. And now they're building four or five versions because the French need one for the South Pacific and the Italians need one that is for high seas combat operations and the Greeks need one to protect their islands. 
And again, we have all this mess. So you need something like that, but inside NATO, and it needs to be funded. And the funding should come. Every NATO member has to spend 2% on defense. And if a country like Germany can't, the money that they can spend on their own military has to go to this NATO defense procurement czar who uses their funds to buy for Ukraine, to buy for members like the Baltics or Romania or Bulgaria, the equipment they need to defend themselves and thus defend NATO. And yeah, I mean, I've been arguing for that for years, but you know, nobody wants to listen because that means giving up national control of part of the defense spending, part of the defense industry. And there are some countries, especially a French-speaking country, who is like, no! And yeah, but as long as we do not sort this out, there will be countries like Belgium who will, and Canada who don't spend anything on defense. There will be gaps in European defense because some countries want to fight and defend themselves, like Romania, and they don't have the money to buy the equipment they need. Other countries like the Dutch, they could spend 2%, but they honestly say, if we spend 2%, we don't know on what to spend it because we have such issues finding recruits for our small military because you know there are so many better paying jobs. Italy doesn't have any problems because the economy in the South is horrendous. So it, the Italian military overfulfills every single personal recruitment goal it has. But, you know, it doesn't have enough money to equip all the brigades to the level it desires. And we have this huge imbalance in NATO and it's not being addressed. And Ukraine is suffering from that because as long as the Europeans and the NATO especially don't get their act together in that regard, Ukraine will get artillery ammunition as much as it needs. But, you know, if Ukraine loses a Panzer Haubitzer 2000 because it's being destroyed by the Russians, None are available to replace it because every country that had some that they could give has given them. And there's now 18 that are being produced to replace the ones donated to Ukraine. And the problem is if you have then built those 18, why didn't you order 50 or 60? So you have a buffer and you can give Ukraine more and replace losses that the Ukrainians have. And you even have more to give to European allies like I'm sure the uh, Romanians would love 24 Panzerhobitzer 2000, but nobody's thinking that far ahead. It's always like the German expression is klein, klein. It's small, small, you know, baby steps, baby steps without thinking two years ahead. The United States is already thinking about which kind of ships it will have in 2060. So 40 years from now, the United States Navy and the United States Air Force are already thinking about 40 years from now, what kind of equipment will we have and how will we get it, organize it and build it. And the Europeans are like, hmm, let's think about August. Go fuck off with your August. Think about the next 10 years, please, people. And War Dog has some, his hand up. And since he's a Ukrainian, they always want to hear the Ukrainian first and listen. Uh, first question is related. Do you think that because of that specifically, Ukraine is having unplanned, as it is announced in the open media meetings with not always the South Korea? And the second, which is related to the like 
rightly described all the, all the scope of the problem, but just better to deep dive. Is that is incompetence? Is that a temporary thing while everybody is getting aligned what is needed and how to do so? Or it is just no desire to do so, which is worse. Those, these two things on the side of the thing. Thank you so much. Um, a large part comes from the fact that the European nations are all in trouble financially. Not, not because the economies are not going good. The massive problem in Europe is the 3% spending limit. If you're in the Eurozone, you may not spend more than 3% of deficit per year. So just 3% of your national economy you can take on as credit for investments or if you spend more as government and plant. Almost all the governments in Europe are already at 2.9%, 3%, some are even 3.1%. And if they want to spend more, they need to cut something. But, you know, cutting teachers' salaries or increasing taxes on road use or for fuel to buy weapons for Ukraine is very unpopular. So they don't do it. And the countries that are financially sound and have the ability to, um, to borrow billions on the open market for financing equipment to Ukraine, like Norway, like Sweden, like Finland, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Germany, Austria, those, the United Kingdom is not in the euro. It could be a borrow billions, you know. Um, yes, you could do it. But, you know, if you borrow billions to give to Ukraine, also not very popular. So, and if you say you're borrowing billions to uh, expand the United Kingdom military or expand the German military, you have leftists who are against that and you have to explain it and then they will make trouble with the courts. So it's not ill will. It's not, it's just nobody has, you know, Winston Churchill went out there and said, I have nothing to offer, sweat, toil, tears, and hell. What was the fourth? Sweat, blood. Sweat, blood, toil, and, and tears. tears. Those four things. And the Brits were like, okay, he's honest. That's what he has to offer. Now we make, make sacrifices. And your politi European politicians are going around saying, yeah, 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 it's all okay. Nothing has to change. Everything is fine. Yes, because the Ukrainians are fighting for us. That's why everything is fine. You have to tell the European peoples finally that Ukrainians are dying every day to keep things here as they are. And if we want to stop the dying and prevent that Russia wins this war, we have to make more sacrifices. And I mean, just limited, limited things, you know. Let's say every European's energy tax goes up 1% for European defense. Yes, some people will feel the pinch, there will be drama, but it's not going to bankrupt anyone. But the amount that will come in, billions. Or as said, if the European Union goes tomorrow and says, European Euro members may spend more than 3% the national um, GDP on deficits, but the only thing that they may spend more is investments, investments in their military, meaning equipment, ships, material, not personal costs, not building bases, but material. And if you tell Italy it can spend 3%, and then it can spend 2% 
on credit to buy weapons for Ukraine and for Romania and for Italian military. And these 2%, you know, would go to Italian industry. They would immediately do it because it's a giant, giant investment in the national economy. If you can borrow on the open market 2% of GDP and put debt into the national defense industry, that's 100,000 jobs, good paying jobs. Italy would do it immediately, but it can't because the European Union says no, no one must spend above 3%. They made an exception during COVID. So if the European wanted, Union wanted, they could do it. Like under COVID, it was like no problem. And after COVID, the European Union made a fund of 750 billion euros to help the countries recover from COVID. And 750 billion, the European Union could say tomorrow also, you know, no one has to spend more than 3%. But we as European Union in Brussels take a 500 billion credit for military equipment for European nations and Ukraine. Could do it tomorrow. I mean, 500 billion is insane because that's 10 times what the United States spends in one year. So you, you can't even spend it that much. But it could do it, the European Union. But all the European Union members have to agree. And there's countries like Finland or Netherlands or Luxembourg or Germany also always like, no, no more credits and nobody must spend more than 3%. And then they want to be bought off with, you know, a special deal for Austrian um, highway taxes and some special deal for Dutch um, tax exemptions from European companies that have their headquarters there. And Hungary wants some billions for some stupid oil uh, refinery that is dependent on Russian oil. And you have to do this horse trading. But again, you know, there needs to be someone in Europe who goes out there and does it. And there's none, no one there. And nobody feels responsible. So everyone is cooking his own soup in his own country and nothing is happening. But that's the regular frustration of free societies um, that we have exactly that. We are not as coordinated um, because uh, we haven't yet uh, achieved that uh, state where we recognize that we should actually have a war posture. What you said earlier, Thomas, uh, remains correct, and we discussed it a few times before, that the lack of individual nation-state procurement is a clear indication that the politicians leading these nation-states and their politics are still geared towards a temporary, um, transient kind of conflict, and that they hope to get away with whatever they can just shed a little bit of money, a little bit of equipment, but please let's get over this quickly. They have not yet understood that this is the final act of the Second World War. And the final act of the Cold War. And yeah. in, during the Cold War, European nations spent 4% of GDP on defense. 4%, the same as the United States still spends. And the European then cut back their defense budget crazily because they thought we have internal peace on this continent but since 2008 it was obvious that Russia was going 
after they invaded Georgia, it was going into the wrong direction and it became obvious when Putin returned into Kremlin in 2012 that he considered that Russians protested against him returning into the Kremlin as a Western plot to embarrass him. And that was the moment when we should have started rebuilding our defense capabilities in Europe. But, you know, we had Merkel who went to Putin and lacked... I must not insult her in such terms, and went to Putin to kiss his feet and gave him billions and built pipelines with him, even though she claims now she always knew the guy is dangerous, which makes her look even more stupid. And yeah, we dropped the ball and nobody in Europe has picked it up yet because guys, Ben Wallace is doing wonders for Ukraine. And he needs billions to save the British army because it's a sh- it's not an army, it's a mess. They don't have any good equipment at this point. The British army is just excellent troops and good officers with some of the worst equipment Bulgaria like. That's the level of the British army equipment. The warrior is 40 years old. And they tried to scrap it and couldn't because they don't have money for replacements. And I mean, so Ben Wallace and Sunak and have done wonders on Boris Johnson to help Ukraine and spent lots of money on that. But when it comes to understand that they also have to build up the British army because NATO expects a British armored division to fight in Poland if the Russians should attack. I mean, if the British could set up a royal military police company now, that would be amazing. That would be the level that contributing that is possible right now. And there's not a single pound forthcoming to rebuild the British army. And we have still, as you said, there's still so many politicians that want to help Ukraine, but don't realize that also they have to spend on their own militaries. The Brits don't do it, the French don't do it, the Belgians don't do it, the Spanish don't do it. I can list 20 countries who are not doing anything to build, rebuild their own militaries right now. And that is, that is a clear lack in deficiency which carries through all of European politics because they simply have not taken this to heart. Um, also, maybe we can wrap the procurement and NATO topic up with this statement which I think is relevant that essentially Ben Wallace's state note that he will leave uh, the cabinet uh, amid the next reshuffle which is expected to occur sometime in September if I'm not quite mistaken David um, is a direct consequence of the continuous pressure from certain people um, definitely from other countries, but also in Britain, but definitely from other countries, and the witch hunt, which always goes on in British tabloids. But it's an unintended consequence of the kerfuffle, which you described earlier about uh, the um, statements by President Zelensky, the um, frustration uttered and voiced, as well as the retort and the response, albeit that uh, what um, Ben Wallace said um, in Vilnius was actually quite commensurately supportive of Ukraine because he reverted back to highlighting that essentially Ukraine needs to ensure that it has continuous support from the United States. But it is an unintended con- consequence of all of this that he is so exhausted 
and so annoyed um, with a lack of propulsion and support for the bid to become NATO General Secretary that I think um, he decided that uh, rather than waiting for the Sunak government to be replaced in the next general election where they probably get a trouncing to simply take his hat. Ben Wallace was the best defense minister for a long time in the UK because he loves the British military. He's an officer. His heart is in it, you know. The Italian defense minister right now is also pretty good because he's a defense industry manager and he loves the Italian defense industry. So he's trying the best to get equipment on the way. Um, Ben Wallace, one thing that comes to the other, he would be an amazing NATO general secretary. But he spent every week on the phone haranguing the United States government to do more for Ukraine. They didn't like that. And the second thing, any week now, the British government has to announce that the British army will shrink again to something like 72,000 men, which is less than the Duke of Wellington had at Waterloo. It's a joke. The Polish army is bigger. The Spanish army is bigger. The Romanian, when they finish their reforms, will be bigger. And they have to cut it back because, you know, they don't have the money for... They would have to raise taxes for a good British army, so they're going to cut back. And if you love the British army, and like Ben Wallace, you went to Sandhurst and you commanded battalions and companies and units, are you the one who wants to go out there and say, well, you are the... Third division, you fought at Waterloo, you fought in World War One. you fought in World War Two, and goodbye. We have to cut you. I think this is one of the moments where Ben Wallace is like, my dream job was taken from me from being too efficient and too, to care too much about Ukraine. That's what cost me my dream job. And the next half year I would have to spend to explain to my fellow soldiers or the people I respect and the army I love, why we have to cut that regiment, why we have to amalgamate that regiment, why we can't have that equipment, why these troops in the future have to walk and don't have any jeeps anymore because our government is basically cutting, gutting, not cutting, gutting the British army because it doesn't want to raise taxes. So why should Ben Wallace stay in politics for that? We are losing it's, one of the best, but it's it's the reality. Uh, very true. So, to the point, even uh, Thomas, that uh, we are spending. Uh, I think it's either one point two or one point eight billion on building a tunnel uh, under uh, the uh, um, Stonehenge. Uh, uh, so we're choosing to uh, spend our money on things like that, as as opposed to on defence, which in actual fact will keep people alive. It's astonishing. Utterly astonishing. The thing is that the United Kingdom isn't in the Euro. It is not even in the European Union. There's absolutely no rules what govern its finances. The government could go out tomorrow and say, like in Germany, we have an international emergency. We make a 50 billion pound credit to get our armed forces back on track. And since 50 billion are spent on procurement of equipment, ships, submarines, fighters, helicopters, uh, new tanks, we can spend more money on our personnel to pay them better salaries. The things would turn around. And 
the British are right now burning through their special relationship with the Americans because the United States since World War II expected the British to be the most reliable partner in war. And during the Cold War, the United States expected the Brits to provide four top quality divisions. And since the Cold War, the United States expects the Brit to provide one top quality armored division and at least two, three light brigades like para, uh, the Parachute Regiment and the Royal Marines. And as it is, the Brits, as I said, I mean, um, the United States are looking at Poland and are like, Poland, you are our best new friend because you have the divisions which an American division will fight, will want to fight next to because you have the equipment and the training and the, the troops with the will to fight. And the Brits, yeah, well, London is nice to go and have some tea. So the Brits are burning through an immense political capital with the United States right now by being delusional about the state of their military and delusional about um, what they can get away with. The United States at some point will say, yes, you have nukes. We are going to fight and you cannot provide a division to us. What's that? The British Air Force has fallen behind the Italian, German, French Air Force in numbers of fighters. And it will fall behind the Turkish and the Greek and the Polish Air Force in the next few years. Because you know, the United Kingdom didn't buy all the Eurofighters it promised, and then they began to scrap Eurofighters because they don't have money for spares and have to destroy perfectly good Eurofighters to get the spares they need for the others that are still flying. I mean, what, what the hell? If you buy a spare, costs a few thousand pounds, and now you're getting a hundred million pound fighter jet because you lack a spare part that costs a few thousand pounds. Yes, we don't have the money to buy the spare. So they, they already got it like 20, 25 of the Eurofighters of the first tranche because they don't have the money to keep them flying. Otherwise, the remainder of the fleet. I mean, they built two aircraft carriers because Britain wants to be a big naval power. And then they didn't have the money to buy all the um, F-35B fighter jets for two carriers. So the Royal Air Force doesn't get any F-35A, which are the Air Force variant of the F-35, because all the money needs to go to the F-35B. So the Royal Air Force gets now a less capable fighter jet, because in the future, the Royal Air Force needs to provide all its fighters, F-35 fighters, to the Navy, so they can equip their two aircraft carriers. Uh, you know, Italy can buy both. South Korea can buy both. Japan can buy both. The UK is too strapped for money. And it's not that the UK is broke. It's just that the government doesn't neither want to raise taxes and doesn't want to make a credit for it. And I know there's some British people in this chat here. And I mean, this government is bonkers. It is mental, uh, Thomas. Utterly mental. It used to be bonkers. Now it's mental. <laughs> Guys, there's some hands up. Let's take these hands and then we shall go to the front line because we have to discuss the Ukrainian offensive and we will. how it's going. Thomas, I have to say one thing. I have to say one thing about Waterloo. I just want to highlight this, that only 20% of the winning fighting force was strictly British. I the know. It was German. the King's Royal, the King's Royal lead. 
It was from Hanover, the King's Royal Legion. It was the Dutch. Um, it was some um, Flemish mm -hmm. unit. And then there came the Prussians in. And there were some um, small contingents from the German states along the Rhine. And small yes, but the first... The first... Hanover the first Brunswick provided 17,500 men. Those were part of the British Empire. The King of England was the, uh, uh, what was it, King of the, um, what was it called back then? Hanover? King of Hanover. Yeah. And one thing people forget, the first and the second and the third British division, they fought, not just at Waterloo, they fought in Spain 10 years earlier. Those divisions are the oldest we have. And the Brits cannot finance them anymore. It's like, how many divisions does France have? Two plus one reserve. Italy, two plus one reserve. Spain, two. Germany, two. And the Brits, well, we have two, but we might have to cancel one because we are too broke to finance two division commands. So these are really old divisions. They were at Salamanca, those, not Salamanca, at. Ah, when did Wellington beat the French in Spain at? Victoria, uh, I for, I, there's so many battles in the Spanish Peninsula. I think campaign that David and, uh, would tell us that something happened closer to Coruña. But um, hey, um, I, I didn't mean to distract you now with Wellington okay. and his battles. I just wanted to highlight that, of course, it was the axis, so to say, between Britain and German troops, which managed to defeat an authoritarian dictator on French soil. Uh, Belgian soil. <laughs> Okay, let's go to hands. Let's let's go to hands. Uh, I think that would be meta than war dog than natural than rules. Meta. Thank you and thank you, Thomas, again for your great explanations. I I just have have this feeling that European Union has uh, started a fund or announced a fund that uh, you know would fund arms to Ukraine, and I'm thinking, you know. Swedish industry, that's what the Ukrainians have especially uh, uh, said that they like CV-90s, Archers and Gripen. And I mean, uh, I'm, have, have I totally misunderstood? Why, why aren't those funds already in Sweden and their full capacity to produce arms straight to the Ukraine, not for the national defense? Am I misunderstanding something? Thank you. I think that European Union fund was meant for ammunition right now because it's a, a ammunition specifically mentioned in the name. And I think they're buying a lot of ammunition and building more ammunition factories in Europe now. And yes, the Ukrainians love uh, the Swedish equipment because it's excellent. Sweden, being a neutral country, produced an immense amount of equipment, excellent stuff for its armed forces because it couldn't rely on anyone else and didn't want to rely on anyone else. So they have the industry. The problem is the Swedish industry. I don't think it could produce all the stuff that Ukraine needs in numbers, the numbers that Ukraine needs. But long story short, if the European Union puts up the funds to start production for equipment for Ukraine, let's say five, 10 millions a year, you can get an immense amount of equipment. Caesar, Panzer Haubitze 2000, Leopard, CV-90s, 
uh, fragile infantry fighting vehicles. You could get uh, Piranha 5s like the Danish are producing now for themselves and the Spanish. You could get uh, air defense systems. Also in the United States, you know, I mean, you can, the United States can't produce Patriot systems if they want to. The factories can churn them out, like in the Cold War, battery after battery per month. They're not doing it. Because they, I think so many politicians think, you know, maybe for those two years that this war will last, why should we start to churn out a lot of equipment when in two years this thing is over and, you know, we don't need all that equipment uh, again, or the Ukraine doesn't need it and we can save some money. So the European Parliament is a good start when it gets in involved and you have seen there was 500 votes, something in favor, and I think 47 against. So the European Parliament is very, very much in favor of doing it. Uh, the problem is that the European governments have to agree to fund it. And some governments, I mean, the, the European governments, if they want to fund something, they can find 750 billion euros for COVID relief, none of which has been spent yet. They just made this gigantic fund for the European Union to recover from COVID by spending 750 billion on infrastructure in Europe. Almost nothing of that has been spent. And the European economy has already recovered. It didn't even need those funds. But the governments wanted it and immediately the European Union had the money. And right now the European governments don't want it or no, but no government is pushing for it because with the COVID relief fund, the Italian prime minister Conte was pushing rapidly for this relief fund. There's a video of him yelling at the Dutch prime minister Rutte in a meeting, like yelling and cursing at him for not being in agreement with this fund. So you need someone going out there in the European Union and pushing for it and demanding it and nobody is doing it. Ben Wallace would have been doing it, but Ben Wallace is not in the European Union. He's the British defense minister, and that's not a European Union member anymore. So is there any European politician who is pushing for that? No. Are the Ukrainians pushing for it? Yes. As non-European Union members, do they have the voice, the ability to push for it? No. So we again, we are stuck here. And the European Union would need to hire someone. And Wallace, when he quits, he cannot be hired by the European Union. But, you know, hire someone, a former military officer or some defense industry person and tell him it's your job, like with the COVID relief fund, to get this going. And if you hire a good manager, it will happen. But right now there's no one, or I don't see anyone pushing for that and we have this problem here i'll have to talk to my finnish representative you know because i know finland has some some pushing power as a new nato member as well so I, at least we need to push do something well that's certainly true so let's uh, go to abdullah then uh, Waterwell and Rus, and then i think we should go back to the front line abdullah three two one abdullah no, well, it will be yeah, it will be Roos then, right? Where do I go first? No worries, Abdullah. We'll come back. Thank you so much. Uh, 
look, the spectrum of the problem you described pretty precisely. The question is, what would be the wake-up call in the sense you partially answered that question saying that the proper person should be hired and i and i truly believe that like if uh countries of europe have to uh have to put their mindset as we were we are discussing here many times as axel said in attack pose in the military mindset that hey there is a war on the continent right i truly believe that ukrainian government ukrainian representatives have truly and precisely described what could be to every european member if ukraine loses this war because we've seen that example already on a small simulation on Ukrainian territory, 2014, Russia took uh, parts of Ukrainian territory. And in several years, Russia just simply scaled with the resources of the territories to conduct the attack on the rest of the territory. And with current mindset of European countries, Actually, if no change is going to happen, that's exactly playing the Russian narrative. Hey, I will do whatever I want and you are weak. You will you will die discussing how many pink tanks you have uh, that are capable to start. That is unfortunately something that Russia was exactly pushing for and saying, hey, you are not united, you are not capable. And that's exactly what needs to be fought back as the mindset as a narrative that that russia is pushing and i truly believe that there will be the way how to overcome this otherwise with such mindsets countries of europe will be just sitting and waiting calling america for article 5 in nato and that's not the winning mindset and that's not how the war on the continent would be would be finished that is not how the aggressor the imperial state of russia would simply get their nose punched for the ages in order not to conduct the same things on the continent this is not how their intention of doing something similar would be discouraged massively so that's that's my take thank you so much thank you so much again you're welcome and you're very right this is a wake-up call europeans think that the wake-up call this what we have in ukraine is something like hitler annexing austria no this is hitler invading poland because that started a major war and Ukraine has resisted, thanks to Western help, much longer than Poland could, because also the Soviets in, marched into the back and backstabbed the Polish army, who was trying to build a front in eastern Poland. So European governments still believing that this is not a wake-up call and not the beginning of a new decade of instability and danger. You look at the Finns, you look at the Swedish, they immediately understood this isn't some little problematic, temporary nuisance. This means we have to get into NATO as soon as possible. We have to get under the American nuclear umbrella. We need support from allies. German Chancellor Scholz, when it happened, had a five-minute moment of lucidity, lucidity 
and went out there and made a hundred billion fund to get the German army back in shape. And that's it. But the Polish understood it. The Baltics understood it. Czechs and Slovaks understood it. Romania understood it. Some countries really understood it. Others, not so much. The problem is that some of these countries like France, Spain, and Italy have vast in industry to help Ukraine, but they are so constrained by the European Union um, financial rules that they cannot produce new equipment and they themselves are starved of equipment and nobody's trying to fix that. And in a real wake-up call, governments would be honestly telling their people the life that we have lived, this peace dividends called period of 30 years is over. The peace dividend wasn't a dividend. The peace dividend was stealing from the future preparedness of the European defense capabilities. It's over. We went from spending 4% on de of defense during the Cold War to 1, 1.5%. We have to get back up to 2% at least. Dear Europeans in France, dear Europeans in Spain, dear Europeans in Italy, we have to either have, paying, either have to pay more taxes or we have to cut some benefits, social stuff or whatever, or we have to go to the European Union or as European all together, you know, agree on... Let's just make a quick game here. Um, if... The European Union decides that defense investment in procurement material is not any longer part of the 3% deficit spending than Portugal, Spain, France, Belgium, Italy, Greece, um, other countries, for example, I would assume also the Czechs, not the Czechs, the Slovaks and the Hungarians and the Croatians and the Slovenians would go completely nuts on defense spending because all those armies need to be rebuilt, expanded, and need new equipment, and they have defense industries, sometimes very small ones like Croatia. But if they could spend funds on debt in defense industry, on credit, and it wouldn't count to the 3% deficit in the European unions, billions would flow into defense industry not just for their own armies, but to help Ukraine. Because, you know, at that point, you can do it on credit. You don't have to cut social services. You don't have to raise taxes. Just take a credit. They would love to do that. But, you know, there's countries that are blocking that or not even thinking about doing that. I mean, Denmark is doing it. And I always say, look at Denmark. They're like, we have been spending 1.53% of GDP on defense. We will spend immediately 2% on defense. And my neighbor are firing off fireworks, and I have no idea why. Um, <laughs> no worries, Thomas. But the thing is, what you just mentioned is, of course, uh, this is where the uh, strength of the European Union should actually come to play. And you highlighted a little earlier that, of course, nations who have a stronger budget capacity, who have a better economic prospects or uh, deeper pockets, could easily, could easily support be it out of the completely unutilized or largely unutilized corona and infrastructure funds, they could support exactly the build-out of what is better armies all across Central Eastern Europe and across those nations in Europe who do have personnel capacity but simply do lack the funds for equipment. This is where the EU and NATO states should simply partner up with each other because joint procurement is the way forward. Exactly. 
and NATO doesn't have the money. The European Union is the one with the tons of money. Na people don't understand NATO is just an organization that provides operational commands that in case of war will need the member states to provide these commands with units. And then these commands with the units they receive will defend Europe. During the Cold War, it was different. During the Cold War, the European nations and the Americans had permanently assigned units to these commands. So there was central command in southern Germany. It had at all times 13 divisions, Canadian, American, German divisions in southern Germany. And there was the northern command in northern Germany with Belgian, uh, Dutch, British, and German divisions and American brigade, they were permanently assigned to these commands and ready to go at a minute's notice. Today, NATO has not a single unit. Everything NATO receives in troops only arrives when a nation state like Germany says this brigade, this fighter wing will now be assigned to NATO. So NATO has no funds, has no units, it has no nothing what it can give to Ukraine or what it can finance. The money that Ukraine needs and European defense needs is all in Brussels with the European Union. The European Union can borrow 3,000 billion euros tomorrow if it wants to. Because the European Union has never borrowed. The first time the European Union borrowed was uh, the 750 billion for the COVID fund. That means this gigantic economic block, which is so rich and so wealthy, has unlimited credit. But the governments need to sit down and say, you know what, we should do this. Tomorrow, European Union, you go and borrow 50 billion in, in money to um, buy equipment for European armies and Ukraine. They did it now, but just for ammunition. And I think it's just two, three billions that they agreed to borrow. Yeah, the, the amounts are negligible. And actually, this also comes back to what David and I discussed. I think, what was it? Uh, David, remind me, was that in October last year? And then we updated a little bit throughout the um, late autumn and winter that essentially the amounts required in order to beef up Ukraine's military with modern, proper equipment are significantly lower than people imagine. In terms of, pure I think it was purchase. July uh, uh, this time last oh, year. Yeah. We, we, Axel, we, we, yeah, we did it. We did did it about a bit too Back of the fag packet. <laughs> True, Thomas. It's not about the money. I don't think so. It's all about the political world still, and it's about the awareness and that it hasn't sunk in. And even this grand summit in Vilnius, whilst it may have accelerated a few things, whilst it may have brought a few people together. It is still the Ukrainians with the help of individual nation states fighting only and not many in Europe have really had it sink in. Yep, that's the problem. And you need one government or one prime minister who is completely obsessed with the topic and goes out and pesters everyone about we need 10 billion in a fund from the European Union to buy. I mean, if the European Union tomorrow says we have 10 billions in equipment for Ukraine to buy from European defense contractors, every single European defense contractor will be in Brussels tomorrow and will find 
so much more capacity and will find so much more possibility to produce equipment and get a bit of that 10 billion because they have all been starved and all their production lines have been idle or at minimum capacity for the last 15, 20 years. And the ammunition factories are running at full energy right now. But if Brussels 10 billion, 15 billion, I mean, 10 billion is more than the Italian army spends in two years on equipment. So if you say um, the European Union has 10 billions, not even asking Ukraine for what it wants to spend on just we have 10 billions. The European defense contractors have to tell us what they can give us in two years for that now. And they have to produce it in the two years. Get going. And you will see everyone, every CEO will be in Brussels and they will find capacities and capabilities and tools and equipment and personnel that will get every retired worker back into the factory. It's just a question of money. And it's just a question of political will to spend the money. And 10 billion compared to 750 COVID relief fund, which is not needed, it's a joke. 10 billion is what the European Union spends every week or month on just keeping food prices low. There's unlimited money in the European Union, so no big deal if they want to. And these are not big. Sorry? No, sorry, I, I, was, I was unmuting myself a second too early. Um, shall we go to, um, to the front line, Thomas? Just a second. My father called, and I just want to call him back and see if everything is okay. No worries. So um, I will be because... offline for three minutes and I will get a glass of water because I'm thirsty and then I will be back with you guys, okay? Not a problem. That gives uh, David and myself a good opportunity to do a, a small PSA. Well, we, uh, we, let's do a, a joke. Uh, that would probably take three minutes, right, uh, Axel? I don't have a joke, but the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> so over to you. <laughs> I can't invent one. No, what I would like to highlight is, um, yet again, uh, the reason why we're here with Thomas Tyner this evening is, of course, that we want to create information awareness, that we want to have an open and frank discussion with people about key items and key topics related to uh, the current status in Ukraine. We've now gone through a number of issues in regard to joint procurement and into the NATO summit and what it all means, which is great. But we do this as part of information awareness uh, at Muria Report. And when we do so, we do so with a view to generating more capacity for humanitarian aid and uh, therefore, in this instance, for uh, donations generated from all across the world in support of missions which uh, have been brought to us, be it by Halina Lukova, the deputy mayor, if you want to translate her function because she's the deputy secretary of the House on City Administration, but she is therefore in the function of the deputy mayor. And uh, whether it is supporting her administration and providing humanitarian aid, which still continues at this point in time in view of the ecocide and the disaster associated with the Novogorovka Dam and it being blasted by the Russians and the many, many thousand people who have suffered directly from both the initial flooding, the death, destruction, the um, displacement, as well as the subsequent uh, malaise going hand in hand with both the deprivation in terms of water, food, access to uh, 
um, hygiene and the likes. All of this needed to be assisted with, and our team at Mirror Report immediately when uh, the suggestion came up by the Hassel City Administration whether we could do, said, yes, of course, we will. And this is what Mirror Report then does. We generate a buzz, we create a topic, we try to generate uh, donations, and we'd be extremely keen to have you please retweet the space, share, like, discuss, tell us where we're right, tell us where we're wrong. That is fine. That's completely okay. But also, make sure that we can all jointly generate more support for our Ukrainian colleagues and friends because they do need it. And we'll, we'll pass on exactly what we generate as donations uh, as quickly as possible, whether it was with Shevgenia, whether uh, we supported the Rapid Reaction Brigade Rubij, uh, of our co-founder, Phil Lane, my dearly beloved friend who has been working them very, very closely for many months and supported them with additional kitting, or whether it has been since now, what, three weeks, our friend Wardogo, who's been uh, first arranging demining equipment and additional com uh, components, which are extremely important in terms of night vision equipment just as well for U uh, Ukrainian troops fighting in specific operations. Wardogo. Want to add something to that? It seems I took him by surprise. Not a problem. And with that, I can see that Thomas Tyner is actually joined. Re no, there was. An Let's try this again. Thomas is rejoining us in just a second. So that is what we're here for. So please do not forget to press the. We could go to Ruse or Abdullah, though, Axel, while we're waiting. Sure. Uh, we actually have Thomas back now. But yes, let's let's clear the two hands. Uh, I think Abdullah was waiting for the longest. Let's go to Abdullah first and then Roos. And uh, please, uh, do you have a question for Thomas? I do, I do. Thank you so much, Axel and David. Thomas, uh, thank you so much for your time and for that sober assessment when it comes to the security situation uh, in Europe. But at least, at least uh, Macron and, uh, and the Indian Prime Minister are working on a secret peace plan. Maybe we have that to look forward to. But uh, I wanted to ask you something and get your take on the recent uh, developments from Turkey. And uh, where do you think that relationship uh, is going? And what, what can the West do in, uh, to foster that relationship? Thank you. Turkey has been a very good supplier of equipment for Ukraine since the first day of the invasion. The Turks kept very, very quiet about it. Um, because Turkey is an economic crisis, it's the fault of Erdogan because his economic policies are a little bit bonkers. Um, the thing is that I think Erdogan has also a very clear sense of who is a loser and he doesn't like to deal with losers. So I'm pretty sure Erdogan has looked at Putin after the Prigozhin uh, mutiny and decided that that guy is not worth his time. So Turkey decided, um, I'm getting what I want from the United States. It's F-16s. I'm getting from Sweden what I want, that they outlaw the PKK and stop its activities in Sweden of funding and so on. And I will vote Sweden into NATO because Putin can suck it. 
And Erdogan was like, you know, I have been keeping these Ukrainian Azov commanders for a year in Turkey. I promised Putin that I will not let them go home to Ukraine until the war ends. But, you know, Putin is a loser and I don't care. So he can go to hell and those guys can go back to Ukraine. Since Zelensky is a winner and Erdogan likes to deal with winners. And the next thing is Erdogan was like the grain deal will continue and the Russians will either agree or Turkey and Ukraine make the grain deal on their own and the Turkish Navy, which is far superior to the Russian Navy in the Black Sea, will secure the grain deal. And Putin meekly was like, yes, fine. Um, that was not nice with the um, of guys, but the grain deal will go on. So Erdogan has a very keen sense of who is a winner, who is a loser. And he got his revenge in pretty early by destroying the Saki airbase. And he let the Russians know that was for them bombing a... The Russian Air Force bombed a Turkish convoy in Syria and killed some 40, 50 Turkish soldiers. And the Russians kept bombing after the Turks asked them to stop it. So um, Erdogan got his revenge against the Russian Air Force. He doesn't like to speak about it, but he got his revenge. He let the Russians know. They didn't even say anything. And since then, every time Erdogan did something, the Russians were just like meekly, please don't. And Erdogan was like, yeah, okay, those are losers. I don't like to deal with losers. And so, yeah, is Erdogan going to go all out and give Ukraine as much equipment and as much material as Poland? No. Because the Turks need Russian tourists for their holiday resource, which right now are filled with all kinds of Russian scum that has fought in Ukraine and now taken a holiday to go to Turkey, you know, and spend some time on a Turkish beach and harass Ukrainians that work there as dancers or as waiters or are refugees. So, um, and Erdogan needs. Uh, the Russians for certain oil transfer and gas transfers for some. There's also the question of shipping. Like, you know, Turkey has a huge textile industry, which gets its cotton from Uzbekistan and so on, which goes through Russia and then by ship to Turkey. So there's kinds of Turkish economy interdependency with Russia that the Turks being in an economic crisis and no one coming out there to help them with a few billions out of their predicament need to keep the Russians on board. But Erdogan has sensed that, you know, if Ukraine is going to be the winner and the Crimean Tartars, which have been under Turkish Osman Suersainti, under Osman rule and control for centuries, get back Crimea and whoever holds Crimea controls the Black Sea. So it's much better to be in good graces with Zelensky and the Ukrainians and with Putin. So Erdogan is going to ratchet up his support more openly. There's howitzers coming. The Turks have an immense amount of Leopard 1A5 tanks that they might give to Ukraine because they could um, get them replaced. They want them to be replaced with their own design, which is going into production now. And the Turks have an ex excellent ballistic missile 
and anti-ship missile industry and a lot of shipping capabilities, corvettes. The Ukrainians bought a corvette, a new capital ship for their navy and in Turkey, and they will get it. So, yeah, they're going to be more open about the support for Ukraine, and they're going to bring in more stuff. But they will still be very quiet because Ukraine received cluster munitions, 10,000 of rounds of cluster munitions, way before the United States even discussed sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. Take a guess which country was like, the Ukrainians need ammo? What kills Russians best? Oh, it's cluster munitions. Have a few trains full of those dear Ukrainians and a few hundred trucks on top of that. Just don't make it public because we don't want the Russian guests getting drunk at our adults-only hotels on the Turkish coast too depressed knowing that their holiday pays partially for Turkish cluster munitions that kill 200 Russians a day. So don't make it too public, but you know, here, have it, enjoy yourself. So the Turks have been quite supportive, but also very quiet about it. And I think Erdogan now senses who is a winner and who is a loser, and he will be a bit more outspoken to show the world that he is with the winners. And the next thing, this is also very cold economic calculus, the best construction companies in Ukraine are Turkish companies. <laughs> I went to Kiev in 2007 for the first time. They had been building a bridge for 10 years. Last time I was in Kiev was in winter 2020. I spent a few months there. The bridge wasn't finished. It's the eternal unfinished bridge. In Zaporozhye, they decided they want a new bridge across the Dnieper, and they got a Turkish construction company. It was two years and it was finished. So Erdogan giving Ukraine more now is also because he senses the Turkish construction companies, if Turkey is with the winners and a close ally of the winners, the Turkish construction companies are going to rebuild in Ukraine almost everything, and they're going to make billions and billions and billions a year. Erdogan, in the end, is about money and what keeps Turkey and his rule basically on what's best for him and Turkey in that order. Best for him, best for Turkey. So the United States has like, okay, you can have 79 uh, kids to upgrade your F-16. And he's like, yes, I always wanted Sweden in NATO. and But the Swedes have to outlaw the pay. PKK, Sweden, fine, we will do it. Oh, we are the best friends now. I want to buy CV90 from Sweden or something like that. And with Turkey, it's also, you know, because there's bridges to be rebuilt. There's the Kharkovka Dam to be rebuilt. There's immense amounts of Crimea of having Russian crap that the Russians build has to be thrown down and destroyed. There have to be cities to be rebuilt and airports. And, you know, Erdogan is like, well, who's going to build it? Well, because before this war, the best construction companies in Ukraine were all the Turkish big ones. So take a guess. So yes, um, Erdogan in the end is a very opportunistic person. 
Erdogan was insulting and calling disgusting names the prime minister of Armenia for years until the guy lost a war and decided, you know, it's enough with all this Karabakh nonsense. We are making peace with Azerbaijan and we are making peace with Turkey and we can close this chapter and Armenia focuses on its own development in the future. And Erdogan was like, you must come to my inauguration. You must sit in the first row. I must hug you when you enter in the hall. You're my best friend now. So a very, very opportunistic person, Erdogan. That's why he stays so long in power. And yes, he's right now sensing that Zelensky is the man of the hour and man of the future. So why stick with Putin, who is the loser of yesterday? Um, yeah, um, still not going to go out of its way to help Ukraine publicly, but there is going to be the Ukrainians wanted cluster munitions carrying rockets which the United States still has in South Korea and the South Korean have immense amounts of and the Greeks and the Turks have immense amounts of and the United States was like, nope. And they told Turkey, don't you dare deliver our cluster munition carrying rockets to Ukraine because we don't want cluster munition. It was a few months ago and Erdogan was like, fine, I'm giving Ukraine a Turkish made rocket launcher with Turkish-made rockets with cluster munitions. But we don't speak about it. We say we gave them trucks. Fine. The Ukrainians are happy. The Russians are not very happy. Since Erdogan doesn't make it very public, the Russians are also very quiet about it. And everybody is happy, except for the Russians on the front. And so Erdogan is... uh, very calm. He's, he's a Middle Eastern guy. It's always a bazaar with him, you know. You can trade with him. You could even trade more with him if the European Union and the United States would be more willing to pony up money to support the Turkish economy. You know, you could tell Erdogan, you know, we have this feeling we should pony up a billion to support the Turkish economy. Let's call it refugee deal refugee deal plus plus something 2.0 and that billion you take but then you'd give ukraine for a billion tanks from your factories and depots in exchange and erdogan would be like say no more friend and yeah so the thing is that the turks are they have the material they have no fear of the russians whatsoever um the russians are more dependent on turkey than anyone else because 90% of the remaining russian oil exports go through the bosporus and dardanelles and if turkey closes that the russian economy crashes in a week so the turks have the russians by the balls and erdogan decided that until now I had to dance on two parties but you know Putin is a loser and I don't want to be seen with that guy at a party so he's now backing much more openly Ukraine and I don't mind I don't mind Turkey is a much better NATO partner right now than France because France ratified Sweden's accession quickly and no problem but Turkey you know delivered way more equipment to Ukraine and much more useful stuff and the Turkish industry has been producing more ammunition for Ukraine than countries like France or Spain. So, 
but they do not speak about it. And there's mortar ammunition coming in from Turkey with cluster munitions. There is uh, missiles coming in. There's um, protected vehicles coming in and missile launchers and drones and other stuff. So, yeah, um, very interesting. Erdogan is a character and he's... In some aspects, he's a horrific person, but in other aspects, he's quite fascinating. And right now, Ukraine is profiting from it. And at the same time, Armenia also, you know, the eternal enemy of Turkey. The Armenians are like, we must fight Turkey, and the diaspora is so angry at Turkey. But Erdogan immediately senses he can be with the winners if he embraces the Armenian prime minister and helps him along to a peace treaty with Azerbaijan and then Turkey and Armenia finally closing the chapter of the Armenian genocide and normalizing relations. And he is like, I can be on two victory parties here. And he is just now Pashinyan. He's always been my friend. You called him a goat fucker. No, 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 no. Do you misunderstand me? He's my best friend. And so he's a fascinating character, Erdogan. But he can also be very grating and annoying and sometimes rude and stubborn and the Sweden, the Swedish experienced that side. So in the end, I don't care about anything but getting Ukraine more weapons, which cut down Ukrainian losses and lead to a quicker end of the war. And since Erdogan is delivering and he got Azerbaijan to deliver immense amounts of equipment to Ukraine too, Basically, Azerbaijanis were like giving it to Turkey and then the Turks were like losing it on the way to Ukraine or somewhere. And so I don't care what Erdogan has done in the past right now. Please continue to do what you do, because peace in the Caucasus means that the Armenians finally throw the Russians out, which have a base in Armenia from which they spy on Turkey, from which they spy on uh, um, the Kurds in Syria and the Americans in Syria, from which they have been festering the war in Azerbaijan by delivering weapons and helping terrorists and so on. And so if Turkey, Azerbaijan, Armenia find finally a conclusion to their wars and history, the Russians are out of south of the Caucasus and that is good. And what he does with Ukraine helps the Ukrainians a lot. And I mean, the Ukrainians have lost their entire navy and Turkey is the only country who is like, you need a Corvette with long range anti-ship missiles? <laughs> Say no more, we're building you one. And that's just wonderful. I mean, the Italians could build one, the Spanish could build some, the Americans, the French, the British, the Dutch, nobody is doing it. And the Turks were like, a Corvette? You pay for it and we build you one and we will deliver it even in the middle of the war. And they just put it into the water and are now finishing the um, weapon system and the guns and so on. And it's the first of, I think, two or three that they're getting the Ukrainians. And yes, they're not good enough to go up against Russian destroyers, but these Corvettes could then hunt down Russian submarines, which is a really important task. So yes. And here, a side note, David, who is a listener, reminded me that actually the United States has told Raytheon to get its shit together and build five Patriot batteries and deliver them to Ukraine. 
So um, I completely missed that. And fantastic news because five Patriot batteries will allow Ukraine to protect all its cities. And that's exactly what it is. And David reminded me, and I have heard something about that, but really didn't notice. And so I have to take it back that the United States hasn't started production. The United States has started production of Patriot and uh, Norway of NASAMS and Germany of Iris-T and Ukraine is receiving medium range and long range air defense system and anti-ballistic missile systems from three countries. And these are worth billions of dollars and will save so many lives of civilians. And that's really good. And again, David, thank you for reminding me in my, um, he wrote me a message. And for once I have to say without David, I would have mis misinformed you and, and have to thank David for straightening me out of my errors. Ah, wonderful. I, I'm going to add a little bit of co uh, context to that, uh, Thomas. Uh, they are at the uh, at the earliest uh, at the earliest. They believe they'll be ready at the end of 2024. So this is not something that's going to arrive in uh, 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 very anytime soon. Which is why there was the discussion that uh, Germany would actually uh, front two of those systems, and the Netherlands another. Which would be fantastic because Ukraine needs up as soon as possible. And 2024 is okay, but you know, there's a winter coming up, a winter 2023, and Ukraine needs to have air defense for all its major cities before the winter begins. Because if the war is on at that time, the Russians once again will try to destroy the Ukrainian electricity and heating grid to freeze the Ukrainians into submission. So we have to get that stuff, not again like last year in October, November, oops, the Ukrainians need air defense. No, you need to get it in by September, have it up and running at the end of September. So if the Russians try, they fail right away to destroy Ukrainian electricity and heating. Uh, which and that is the thing in those hawk systems that are, are being bought in Taiwan, they're unlikely to make it in time though, right? At the moment in time, we've got, two three months to get this stuff uh, in place so bought refurbished or whatever they need to do and then into ukraine that's that sounds like a little bit of an impossible task the thing is that the hawk system is an old system you can shoot down shahids you can shoot down cruise missiles only patriot is capable of shooting down ballistic missiles like the iskander and the kinshal People forget the Kinshal is nothing but an Iskander launched from a plane. It's the same missile. So, and Patriot, there's two batteries. One is ambushing Russian fighter jets, and the Russians don't fly in the ambushes anymore. Very, very sad. And the other one is protecting Kiev. And the Ukrainians need more stuff. Because the Russians have learned that they need to fly their cruise missiles in an unpredictable zigzag pattern across Ukraine, hoping to avoid the, the more and more present Ukrainian air defense systems. And yeah, um, long story short, more Patriot systems are needed. Spain, Germany, Netherlands are the only countries in Europe that have some to spare. And if each of those countries gives one to Ukraine, Ukraine has five, maybe the United States can spare one, then there's, the Ukrainians would have six. And at that point, you can protect most cities. 
except for Kharkiv, because Kharkiv is so close to the Russian border. If you put a Patriot system there, the Russians will destroy it with artillery. Kharkiv is one of those cities that we won't see rebuilt to its former size after that war, because it's just too close to Russia. And I know people from Kharkiv, um, they know it in their hearts that that city is gone. The city that they knew before the war is gone because it's too close to Russia. And uh, But Dnieper can be protected in Zaporozhye with one battery, Odessa and Lviv and Kiev, and then somewhere in the center of the country to uh, shoot down missiles that try to pass towards Kalnitsky because Kalnitsky is the most important air base and the Russians keep attacking it and so on. Uh, and and Thomas... Uh, what I was going mm-hmm. to do is because I noticed that uh, Ruse has had his hand up for quite a while. I was wondering if we can clear Ruse and then uh, because uh, we've uh, um, uh, can we go to what's happening on the front line, do you think? Let's clear all the hands and then we go to the front line. Uh, good man. Thank you very much. So that will be Ruse, then Alex, then Kerry. Ruse. Yes, I'll, I'll have to backpack uh, a few an hour or so. To when the COVID uh, fund w- was mentioned, because I was going to talk about it, um, and uh, someone actually mentioned it. Because from what I understand, this is not used uh, to more than like 10 or 15%. And it's quite a lot of money. And I'm not sure there is no political will to open that for our arms industry. I think what might be lacking is political initiative. I'm actually not sure it wouldn't be open quite quickly if just a few countries just started to push for it. Uh, Because redefining arms industry to, to critical infrastructure is not that far off. Uh, do anyone know if something like this has started? Sorry, Rhys, it's uh, the, the sound, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very deaf, right? So it sounds like you're saying you're not sure if, if, it, if it, it, well, you think it's a lot of money, but you wonder if it's political initiative as opposed to political will that's slowing the stuff from going down. Is that, was that correct? Yes, if it, if if someone if there is actually some political initiative that has started to redefine and open the 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 COVID uh, fund for arms. Oh, a, a good question, uh, Thomas. What do you think? I think you can't open the COVID fund for arms because it's an invest infrastructure investment funds, and you have to present an infrastructure project inside the European Union. To get that money and they're building you know the problem is that this is such stupid because the fund has so much money and they don't know what to do with it they're building cable cars and um this um not cable cars like in san francisco where they have in the road a cable trams trams, trams we call them. with cables you know and they're building them into the mountains here and they're building some bridges they don't need and tunnels they don't need <laughs> to spend the money so, but you can't, it's an infrastructure fund and, you know, you, maybe you could build a defense factory with it, but it would take a year. Yes. 
But the thing is that they because it's, it's it's not that far off to to define the arms industry as infrastructure. It's it's quite close. Yeah, but you know, I mean, there was a huge discussion because the Italian military tried to smuggle into this Italian share of the European Investment Fund for infrastructure after COVID a new military bases, including one for training skiers in a really, really nice resort down in the Italian Alps. And the Italian government was like, go fuck yourself, what you're trying to do. Stop it, get lost. And now we're getting a bridge between Sicily and southern Italy, which nobody wants except the Italian construction industry and the mafia. And because the European the Italian government doesn't know where to spend all that money. And they call, it's all over Europe the same. And I mean, you could say we take 10 billions out of that to um, spend on Ukrainian um, infantry fighting vehicles or artillery. But the easiest way would be just to say, like with the European Parliament for munition, you know, just take a new 3 billion, 10 billion credit. I mean, the European Union, the European Union has unlimited credit because it's like the biggest economic block in the world. And it has up right now some 750 billion debt, which is not even 1% of GDP. It's like nothing. And I mean, Italy has 120% of GDP in debt and Germany 60 something percent of GDP debt. And the European Union has nothing in debt basically. And they could just borrow left and right if they wanted to, but there needs to be a political will. And then they need to say, yes, let's borrow. And this money is, I mean, it's so much cheaper to borrow now 10 billion and give Ukraine equipment and afterwards having maybe Russia win or Russia retain some territory or this war going on for years or uh, Russia then attacking the Baltics. It's the cheapest way to take a credit now and just tell the European defense industry, build stuff. I mean, who does profit from that? Europeans, because, you know, it's not going to buy equipment in China. They're buying cameras, steel, wheels, and tires, everything in the European Union. It's also part of an investment in the Euro in post-COVID European economy. And unlike infrastructure funds where they don't know how to spend all that money, if you spend 10, 20 billions on European military equipment, we know exactly what we need and what Ukraine needs. You will not waste a single euro. And that money will all go to European defense industries. I mean, you can tell France, Ukraine needs fighters. We will put an well, extra... I, I, I promise you that uh -huh. it would be a lot easier to make Germany and Sweden and Holland, uh, Netherlands, uh, mm -hmm. uh, agree on opening a fund that's not used than to create a new one. Yeah. Uh, the problem is you cannot, I mean, you have to agree in all European governments that some money of the infrastructure fund is taken out. Um, the thing is, my personal idea would be you make a fund and you tell some country like the Netherlands, which if some country, let's put it this way, if some country should be against a fund for buying equipment for Ukraine or buying even equipment for European militaries that you tell this country, you're against it. But you know, we wanted to spend a billion on buying a defense equipment from Europe nation. So if you're against it, you're losing out. Then all the countries will agree on it because every European country was suddenly for this infrastructure fund because every European nation could take money out of it. 
everyone could profit from it. So they were all in favor suddenly. And let's say if tomorrow France says we are against this fund and you tell the French, but we wanted to buy 3 billion euros in Rafael fighter jets for Ukraine, the French will be in six, six, seven seconds, they will change their mind and be like, we always wanted this fund. So um, the thing is not that it's not, it's impossible. It's just that there needs to be a government it can't be a minister because it needs to come from a government in the European Union because the head of governments meet in Brussels to discuss these things. So some new head of European government needs to go out there and say, I want this fund and I will find allies. Let's say Sweden says we want it. We find allies with Finland and the Balts and the Polish and the Italians and the Spanish and the Greeks. And we have like 10 nations and we go to Brussels and say we want it. And then the haggling begins. 10 billion, 20 billion, 30 billion. Can we spend it just on our countries or do we have to buy some stuff from the US? Or which? And then you spread it like with the, every country gets a little bit. Even the Greeks get a little bit and Malta gets a little bit. The Maltese don't produce anything, but they need some boats. So you say, you know, we put in the funds two boats for Malta which should go to Ukraine, but you know, now we put in two boats for Malta. So you vote for it and in the end, after the haggling is done, you get the fund and Ukraine gets the equipment. No European government, head of government, is doing it. And that's where we are stuck here. And I wish there would be someone like, I mean, Meloni is, is a little fury. She would go out and do it, but someone has to give her the idea. Um, the Polish could do it, but they're in the election season now, so maybe they don't. Um, Greek, I don't know, maybe the Greeks would profit immensely from such a fund, so maybe they should do it. But you need to have a head of government who goes out there and says, we want that. Thomas, long-time listener, first-time speaker, Gary from Indiana here. Uh, I heard the world's top military strategist say that, uh, what's the point of all this? He said, uh, Russia's got uh, four times the artillery and uh, millions and millions of more shells I might know the guy, Elon Musk, former field marshal, retired. Uh, what does that even mean? He's an idiot and he's a clown and he's a moron and he's a cunt. <laughs> Sorry. Well... Um, anyway, let's, let's, let's now discuss uh, what he said. Russia doesn't have four times the artillery it had, doesn't have anymore. Russia lost an immense amount of artillery because Ukraine destroys Ukra Russian artillery by the boatload every day and Russians can't replace it. Russian barrels are all worn out and they're firing shells left and right that miss. And the ammunition is running low because they're buying in North Korea. And if you can really produce millions of shells per year, you don't buy garbage from North Korea that is 50 years old. Or you have to beg Iran to run their production because you're running out of shells. So. Um, Elon Musk. Where, where is, is it coming at, from, Thomas? Where is it coming from? Who, where does it Russian propaganda. It's, Russian, it's not even Russian propaganda. It's not even Russian propaganda. These are Russian clowns that are online, that are on Twitter, that tweet out bullshit and nonsense and garbage and crap. And since Elon Musk is filled with garbage and crap, his mind is filled with that, he's like, this is a Russian account. This account must know what Russia does. This account says Russia is producing 3 million artillery shells per year. This must be true. I will tweet it out. Ugh. Fair enough. I mean, 
this, I mean, I have blocked the guy because he's such an idiot. It's so embarrassing. You know, he got, he won the lottery by at the same, at the right moment, investing in a company. And then he has some good PR people who told him what to do and behave. And I'm sorry, the Russians aren't producing even a million artillery shells a year. They're just lying because of course you can produce a shell but it's not filled you need to cast the tnt inside have the russians opened a new line to fill the shells with tnt or composite b or whatever they're using no so what was the capacity before the war Three hundred thousand. okay so even if they run this production line now at double their speed and double the time they're not producing a million less maybe half a million maybe six hundred thousand cool now you have a shell filled with tnt worthless you need to make a fuse a fuse is much more complicated it's a mechanical thing or it's a time it's a timer you have to build it some fuses are digital you want a proximity fuse you need to build in a radar and a battery and a generator these are complex things. Can the Russians produce a million fuses a year? No, the United States can produce a million fuses a year. It's complicated. They can. And now you have made a shell and filled it with TNT and you have made a fuse. Congratulations. Now you need to fire it. Do you have, did you make the charges? Uh, no. Well, you can fire it. Okay. Have the Russians opened a new factory for charges? No. The charges need to be precise. If there's too much explosive, the shell flies too far. If the charge is too little explosive, it flies too short. Have the Russians opened a new production line for charges? No. I can say right now the Italians are producing 10 million artillery shells a year. It has the same value as Elon Musk's Twitter clowns who just tell this stuff without knowing. You have to look deeper. Have the Russians opened a new factory for shells no have the russians opened a new factory for fuses no have the russians opened new lines to cast the explosive into the shells no have the russians opened new charge factories no so what's what the production cap capacity of the russians before the war something between 150,000 and 300,000 we don't really know so even if they work 24 hours a day and they work around the clock and run everything at maximum speed good Maybe they can produce 600,000, 900,000. Do they have enough high-quality steel? No. Have they managed to increase production of TNT? No. They're buying it from North Korea. The United States has to buy TNT and redbacks charges from South Korea and Japan because it can't increase production. So all this belief that the Russians have so much more artillery and so much more ammunition, it's a lie. It's some trollish stuff that someone made up. Someone was like, we want to make the world tremble in fear of the Russians. Good. Sorry. Um, so what can we say? Well, we produce 10 million artillery shells. Is it true? I don't know. But let's just tweet it out because someone like Elon Musk will be like retweeting it and then people will start believing it. It's not true. I saw some accounts that were like, the Russians are producing 2,000 T-90 tanks a year. What? Miniature ones for the kids. 
2,000 T-90 tanks are 500 more than the Soviet Union managed to produce of its T-80 tanks or, or T-72 tanks in a factory in a year at its maximum output. So Soviet Union, which was spending 20, 30% of GDP on defense, had hundreds of thousands of people in giant tank factories. Those factories had a maximum output under complete war-like focus in the Soviet Union of 1,500-something tanks. And the same factory now, because Shoigu is a genius, has 2,000 tanks that it produces in a year. It's a made-up number. You know the real number? It's maybe 200. What so it could produce, but it doesn't. Because every picture you see of these Russian tank factories, you can look at the tools. They're always in the same spot since 2017. They're producing zero new tank. So where are these new T-90s coming from? Those are the tanks that India sent back a year ago to have them updated, and the Russians decided not to give back to India, but to deploy to Ukraine. The so Russians are producing see, no tanks. So it almost seems that the Russian propaganda mill wants to scaremonger all over again, just like they did with nuclear stuff and this and that, and killer mosquitoes, to scare Europeans and the West. into And, and they add the caveat, if we're doing all of this and you support Ukraine, you just must like people dying because that's all that's going to happen. More Ukrainians are going to die. Uh, it's a strange argument to make, but I think we've established, Thomas, that this, the Russians weren't the second strongest army in the world. They were the second scariest army in the world until the mask fell. What, what do you think? The Russians were the best army to uh, shoot civilians demonstrating in the street and an excellent army to rape women or kill children. And it was always like that because the VDV and the whole Russian army was meant to intimidate. Just let's go back a little bit. In the early 90s, the Russian army was full of officers that had been going to the Soviet military academies and every soldier had training in the Soviet combat tactics and the Soviet, you know, the soldiers spent two, three years in the army. The draft was two, three years in the Soviet Union. It was continuously training and preparing. And then 20,000 Chechen, Chechens completely beat them to pulp. The Russians lost 20, 30,000 troops against 20,000 Chechens who only had Kalashnikovs, flip-flops and beards. The Russian military was never good. But, you know, if you're a dumb fuck like Elon Musk, you believe the Russian propaganda because it's meant for dumb people. I mean, the more you repeat Russian propaganda, the more you expose that your IQ is 20 to 30. The, Russian prop the Russians are extremely dumb, intelligent people. There's two kinds of intelligent people in the Russian 50 years, the last 50, 60 years. The two kinds of intelligent people that the Russians had in the last 50, 60 years were either executed or they left Russia. Stalin shot all the smart people and the surviving smart people left. The founder of Google is a Russian that left because in Russia, he could be a pimp at best, or a little programmer in a company for the government or an FSB goon spying on his neighbors. 
He's a hundred billion dollar rich guy in San Francisco now. Smart Russians have left. If you look at the Russian movies that they make, they're for dumb people, made by dumb people. Why are Russian movies not finding an audience in the West? They're absolutely dumb. And they're completely fascist. Look at this uh, Russian woman who is the head of the propaganda department, this um, Simon Yan. If you hear her speak, this is a gutter brain, uneducated, dumb. This is the level of government. They make propaganda from stupid people for stupid people. If you read regurgitate Russian propaganda, you expose yourself as being uneducated, low IQ, and not smart. The problem is these dumb people always think that they are the smartest, you know, because they say something different than everyone else. They are not going with the stream of the what the people say. Look at this Robert F. Kennedy guy. Whatever he says, it's bonkers nonsense. He is an idiot. And he has completely believed, he completely believes every little piece of Russian propaganda because the Russian propaganda is for dumb people. And you know why it works? In earlier times, the village idiot was the idiot of the village. He didn't have a voice beyond that. But thanks to Twitter, all the village idiots have found themselves, and they're all in Elon Musk's mansions, telling him how, how smart he is. Elon Musk is what an idiot thinks a smart person looks like, and it's not. A smart person, a smart person has read tons of books about Russia. It has questioned the history of Russia. It has met Russians. It has even maybe traveled to Russia. I mean, I have been to Ukraine and I have spent years living in Ukraine. What do I know? Nothing. I admit, I love the country. I have read a ton of its history. I went to Kortitsa, the island, because Taros Bulba was, the story from Gogol was set there to look at it. It was the Cossack capital. I went to Zaporozhye because it's the city behind the rapids on the Dnepro where the Cossacks had their capital and the Russians crushed them. I went to Lviv to soak in the history and the Carpathian Mountains. What do I know about the culture of this country and the history? Nothing. But I love it. But I'm not going to tell Ukrainians now what they have to do and what they have to, how they have to behave and what their culture should be. So smart people know that their limits and Elon Musk and like the Russian propaganda is like telling the Ukrainians what to do because they think they're smart. Elon Musk was never in Ukraine, but he knows what the Ukrainians should be doing. Simon Yan, the propagandist from Putin, op op openly admits she was never in Ukraine, except Crimea when it became part of Russia. And she's now telling the Ukrainians, what's your fucking problem with us being here to basically swallow you? And these people are so dumb. And um, sorry if I'm getting um, um, agitated here, but our problem is here that we have a podcast, a report here with a thousand listeners. When some crazy fat dude from New Zealand that is wanted in Germany for crimes and in the United States for crimes and is a former Nazi goes on a podcast with a Pakistani dude telling that Putin is going to use nukes to punish the United States for having allowed Prigozhin to make a coup. There's 70,000 people 
listening to that. The problem is that the idiots were lonely and were shut up in their villages because nobody wanted to hear the village idiot. And now they have found them, and I'm sorry to say it, they have found themselves on Twitter. And one of them, one village idiot from South Africa is their leader. And they read every nonsense that is out there. They're just repeating, the Russians produced that many tanks. The Ukrainians have hundred thousands of deaths. Ukraine is um, um, arresting randomly people on the street to send to the front. Uh, I have friends in Ukraine. I see some of them listening here right now. They went today to the Dnieper to grill guys and girls. Nobody is being arrested. But, you know, Elon Musk heard it on the Russian propaganda that the Ukrainians are arresting young people to send to the front. So it must be true. Seriously? Why don't you go to Ukraine? Tell us how you really feel. So listen, let's switch gears for a second. There is one, one thing to address devil's advocate someone said well you think the russians can't go and work around the sanctions i said of course they can but i mean are they going to support a production line do they want to have an economy that's based on transferring stuff in the south china sea off ships like the north koreans do they're not going to be able to to ever get the supplies required to do something big so how off here's a million dollar question is there going to be a moment in the near future where the, the guns fall quiet in Russia because they just don't have any, any more artillery shells, Thomas? Um, no, because the Iranians are producing a ton and the Iranians have pro- been producing an immense amount to send to Syria and to Yemen. And the big problem is the United States and the European Union don't crush the Russian oil trade and the Russian oil trade brings in the dollars which then Russia sends to Iran to buy the Iranian ammunition. So not crushing the Russian oil industry by more sanctions and um, blocking their oil tankers gives the Russians the money to prop up their Iranian regime and also the North Korean regime by sending these countries billions of dollars, which then these countries can use to threaten South Korea, or Iran threatens Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Dubai and all these other nations. And so we are shooting ourselves in the foot by allowing Russia to have billions of dollars, which they can send to other criminal horrific horrific regimes. Um, So um, the the thing that the Russians will lose right now, you can tell the Ukrainians are using every single drone they have on the front to look for Russian artillery and strike it with GMLRS and Excalibur, destroying every day 20, 30 Russian artillery systems. While Storm Shadow has really begun to take away a huge chunk of Russian stored ammo. So the guns will not fall, fall silent, but the Russians will have less and less ability to fire artillery because they're losing so much uh, of their um, Grad launchers and Uragan launchers and Smerch launchers and their counter battery radars. And their, I mean, they, they even a, a convoy of a few trucks with some uh, 70 year old field guns, the Ukrainians spot and immediately HIMARS. And big problem here, they HIMARS it with GMLRS rocket, which destroyed two trucks and two of the guns and killed like three, four Russians. If this had been 
rockets with cluster munitions, they would have destroyed all four Russian guns and killed every single Russians in the vicinity of that convoy. Why? Because the cluster munitions are just coming, raining down in such an intense shower of exploding grenades and shrapnel everywhere and heat particle jets that are DPCIM cluster munitions that the Americans use create shrapnel that flies in a circular motion away from the detonating cluster munition to shred unlucky guys standing around and uh, soft targets like trucks. And each detonation creates a downward heat stream of a copper particle stream at hypersonic speed that will um, um, the expression of fail or like it will not melt it will just grate a hole into a tank so you have hundreds of them raining down detonating creating these particle jets that will uh great to tanks and to artillery pieces and the shrapnel flying around killing everyone so people don't like to hear it but the most efficient conventional tool to kill a lot of humans is cluster munitions that's why ukrainians want it so desperately and thus far we have um, only confirmation that the artillery version is going across albeit what you just highlighted it would be good to see um, high mass capable components to go there. If the United States doesn't want to deliver it, because the last few of those that they have are stored in South Korea for massacring hundreds of thousands of North Korean infantry in the first few days of an invasion of North Korea, invading the South, Turkey, Greece, Finland have a lot of those. And if the United States would lift the block of that, the Ukrainians could get a 10,000, 20,000 of those sweet, sweet M26 missiles, which rain down a lot, a lot of deadly cluster munitions. And you could... <sighs> cluster munitions have been banned because the Russians have been using them primarily in Afghanistan and in other places to hit civilians, cities, villages, refugees, and kill an immense amount of uh, civilians. And Russian cluster munitions have an intended fail rate of 30%. So the, warf the field is afterwards littered with grenades but the slightest touch will detonate. It's a terrorizing weapons that the Russians keep using. And, and, and how they were happy, Tom, Thomas, they were very happy when Western nations out of concern mm -hmm then came to the Oslo Accord because they didn't have to join and they kept exactly. the armory. The Russians, the accord of banning cluster munitions was made to finally get the Russians to stop doing this horrific stuff. And the Russians didn't join and have been using it like crazy in Syria. So in Syria, the Russians killed 100,000 women and children with cluster munitions because they didn't join this Thing. And in Ukraine, I guarantee you, one of the biggest killers of Ukraine civilians, like in Kramatorsk, like in Kherson, and other places, and also of Ukrainian troops, has been Russian cluster munitions, and they have been littering the whole landscape with those. And it's not very effective, because the Russians use it as a terrorizing weapon, 
and the NATO cluster munitions that they developed in the 80s were meant to really one M270 launcher could launch 12 M26 missiles with cluster munitions. And the intention was for one single launcher being able to massacre an entire Russian battalion and not just massacre the troops walking around, but destroy all the vehicles in it. And the estimation was that it would have killed or maimed permanently 80% of the Russians in a battalion if one M270 launched those missiles. And that's why the United States and NATO went bonkers in the 80s on that weapon systems and got half a million missiles, 506,000 missiles, M26 missiles. And Ukraine knows that this has been designed specifically to annihilate Russians, and that's why it would like to have. But the United States has said, which is true, these missiles have a shelf life of 25 years. Production began in 1983. 25 years is 2008. Since 2009, the United States has been destroying 10 to 20,000 missiles a year because they became so unstable that you couldn't transport them anymore. What the United States still has is mostly in South Korea. And the European nations who had those missiles had to destroy them after they signed the cluster munitions bans. Then some country like Germany and Italy and France destroyed all of them. The Netherlands and Norway and uh, the United Kingdom found a cheaper way. They gave them to Finland, 60,000 something. How many of those the Finns really got and received, I don't know, but there were 60,000 something that these three nations had. And some of that, instead of destroying, they just handed it over the day before the uh, cluster munitions ban came into effect to Finland, which still should have some. Turkey has still a lot because they never signed the contract. Greece has a lot. Saudi Arabia has an immense amount of those. So someone like the UK is not allowed to even buy them back. But someone like Finland could buy them back from Saudi Arabia and give to Ukraine because neither Saudi Arabia nor Finland nor Ukraine has signed this stupid treaty which deprived Western militaries of one of the best weapon systems, while the Russians, who were the reason we have this treaty, never signed it. And if you look at Kharkiv in the first few weeks of the war, the Russians dropped thousands and thousands of cluster munitions on that city every day, and every night, and try to kill as many children, women, and old people in the town as possible as punishment for the Territorial Brigade and the 92nd Ukrainian Mechanized Brigade defending that city against a Russian occupation. So cluster, cluster munitions are a magnificent weapon if you use it against enemy troops. Now, that would come in handy if and when the Russians were to try to do counterattacks in various uh, various areas around the line of contact, such as the northeast. But before we go there, Thomas, we still have three hands up. Shall we clear them and then go through this? Because Yes, please, uh, please. And just as a side note, uh, South Korean President Yon suk yeol has just been in Kiev and pledged considerable military aid 
unspecified an amount and in detail, which I like. Um, one would hope that a few things artillery would be amongst them. One thing, South Korea has signed absolutely no treaty that restrains its military because it has the most crazy neighbor of all the nations of the globe. South Korea has also an immense capability and capacity to build equipment and deliver. So South Korea going all in means that Ukraine could get an immense amount of equipment, heavy, light, ammo, high-tech drones, electronic warfare system, and whatsoever. At this moment, I do not know what North Korea, South Korea is going to donate. But if it's substantial, it will make a difference. All righty. So we have hands up. We have Kerry, then we have G-Man, then Alex. Kerry. Hi, Thomas. Thanks very much for being with us again. It's always great to hear you. And every time you swear, you crack me up, <laughs> especially when you use the C word. Um, I wanted to ask you, well... Basically, from what we've discussed, it seems to be the countries that have a more wily, more strategic, more, let's face it, business sense are the ones that are being the most proactive to some extent at the moment. I'm thinking about South Korea and Turkey. It's like if for no other reason, I do not get how, and I know every time you come on, we... You know, we bash this concept around of how this could be a renaissance of um, of Europe, you know, financially as a result of making that investment. So I just wanted to make a comment on that and why the rest of Europe is just not seeing this. Literally, it sounds cold and hard, but you get to the point where you're trying to find any way that you can get leverage for what Ukraine needs. So business acumen, business sense. And then um, I did have another question, but I'll pass it on to someone else. No, that was it. So uh, Putin has put out in the last couple of days as if Russia has not been using um, cluster munitions to this date. And the media is still, I, I just, don't why do you think the media is not it is just being sold the russian line still so one is putin saying that in the last few days why is our media so gullible um yeah that i just don't get it thomas why do you think oh and the other thing is do you think if we started using the term which i think we should concentration camps because that is what the filtration uh, camps are, concentration camps. Do you think that would pierce through? Do you think it might make people wake up and realise what the fuck is going on? Um, let's begin with the journalists. The big problem is I have given interviews, I have given background interviews to journalists. None of them has military experience. Almost none. Thomas Gibson F. that was at the New York Times had a military experience. Almost none. I just had a journalist who, who sent me pictures of some dead Russians in a field and he was like, oh, they must have been executed. They must have been executed. And I was like, no, machine gun ambush. Look, they're spaced out. Everyone is two, three meters apart from the next. And they were walking in a line. You can see that they trampled down the grass and someone um, didn't pay attention. And this Russian 
group of 10, 12 Russians was walking in a line as they shoot, but didn't cover with left and right, you know, um, recon and they ran into the machine gun ambush and were from the side gunned down by a machine gun, not execution, just very sloppy Russian recon work by these two squads. And the journalist was like, yes, but they're lying so dead in a line. Yes, but spaced out, look, and um, all the bullets came in from the right. So you know that they weren't shot in the head or something. I mean, these people have just absolutely no experience and they always assume the worst or what they want to experience. And it's just, it's not like that. You know, if you have, if you see war, I mean, I look at how the, there was an ambush an Armenian company tried to take back the city of Sushi in November 2020. And they re- ran into an ambush. And you could tell from the death that the Azerbaijanis had set up at least three machine guns and in the crossfire killed probably 90 to 100 Armenians that were on a road exposed to a hill opposite the valley and had a machine gun in front of them, basically gunning them down with this straight road. And then the road was on a wall, to, you know, to on the slope. And above the slope has to be a turret. And they also were throwing down grenades. And you saw that this, any movement forward, left, right, staying put, every, there was no escape for them. They were all gunned down. I saw the helmets. It was a huge amount of helmets. And journalists were like what happened here and oh my god was this cluster munitions and so on it was like no you can tell it's um it was a classic well set up infantry ambush by a superior trained unit and the thing is that uh, you have to explain it to journalists and then they still don't write it because you know it, it doesn't sound cool if you tell them this was a textbook perfect ambush executed by the Azerbaijanis and then you, I figured out it was Azerbaijani special forces. So it was the top elite Azerbaijani units that set up an ambush because they knew if the Armenians attack, they have to come up this road. And they looked at that road two kilometers and choose the ideal spot on those two kilometers to create a kill zone with no escape. Officers, soldiers with experience know this. Journalists don't. And a journalist doesn't then want to write an article textbook uh, ambush, uh, Armenians ran into an ambush, had no chance, and so on. The journalists then want to write horrific face of war and so tragic and so on. And the problem is, I mean, I have an interview with a journalist tomorrow about the M777 gun. And I mean, uh, I'm not naming names, but we have to walk through what a shell is and why TNT is filled inside and so on. And journalists go to journalism school I see there are some journalists right now listening to us. Sorry, guys. You go to journalist school, you learn to be objective, you learn to be honest, you learn to be not uh, taken in by one side, you learn not to take bribes. You don't learn war. You don't learn war. I, I can I recognize cluster munitions from the sound. I see a picture of a British tank fired. I can tell you what kind of shell he's firing by the pattern of the explosion that comes behind the shell. You don't learn that if you're a journalist. You need some military guys. Newspapers don't like to hire military guys because um, we, we're not interested in the widows of war writing stuff. We are interested in did this Ukrainian crew execute a fire mission speedily and, and professionally. And we realized that, I mean, 
there's things I see journalists sending me videos of Ukrainian M777 crews firing their guns and they're like, look how fast they are. And only thing I can look at that they used the rammer to ram the shell into the barrel and then they dropped it on the muddy ground and now the rammer is dirty and full of mud. And next time you put a shell in, you're putting some earth and dirt into the barrel, which will wear down the chrome plated rifling of the barrel, which will reduce the longevity of the barrel, which will reduce um, the, cap the ability you have to use this gun efficiently. And I see that. And the thing is why the journalists don't write it, because they don't know. I mean, Russia says we have never used cluster munitions, and I can just first evening I saw a video from Kharkiv. There was just the sound, pluck, 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 like a popcorn. It's a cluster munitions. I can't tell you which warhead, but the amount of uh, detonations. A journalist is like, "What was this? What was this big explosion? Was this a impact by a Russian artillery shell? Was this an impact by a Russian missile? Was this a interception?" They don't know. Yes, most military officers are not good journalists. They couldn't write that down and make it gripping and interesting. It's not their toolbox. Military officers, military experts have different toolboxes. But the problem is that newspapers, I mean, there was this New York Times article about a group of Russians that seemed to have been executed, lying in a line. And we saw two videos, one from above from a drone that there were a row of dead Russians and one from the ground that these Russians were lying on the ground. And then a Russian appeared out of nowhere and began to fire at the Ukrainian troops who were trying to take these Russians prisoner. And the New York Times made a huge story that these might have been executed based on that. But I looked at the video and I could tell you where the machine gun was placed that kept an eye on these Russians. And that where the other two Ukrainians were based that were keeping an eye on these Russians. And the problem was the Ukrainians were bad, badly spaced out. So they didn't see the Russian emerging from a building and saw him too late. And this Russian could gun down one Ukrainian before an other to his right could neutralize that Russian. And the machine gunner immediately opened up with his fire and his crossfire towards this Russian killed the Russians on the ground because the impacts came from the side where you don't have bulletproof vests. So what is there? There was no execution. What was happening here was a badly spaced out Ukrainian squad trying to take Russians prisoner with one Russian deciding that he doesn't want to take being prisoner and attack the Ukrainians. While in the cross, while in the in the in the crosshairs of a machine gun, and this guy then killed his comrades because the machine gunner did his duty. We attacked the open fire, and as an officer and as a soldier, you know that there the Ukrainians did nothing wrong. The Russian, this one Russian who came out to start firing at the Ukrainians, led to the death of everyone, and one of the Ukrainians was gravely against, injured. That's against the Geneva Convention, Thomas, as well, yes. isn't it? Faking surrender. And yeah. the New York Times didn't ask any military expert. They went to some doctor in Oakland that is a doctor against war crimes and asked her about this video, what she says. And she said, these Russians are lying in line. They must have been executed by shots to the head. What the hell? Shots to the head. And I can tell you what how that looks. The helmet doesn't stay on and the skull isn't intact if you get shot with a Kalashnikov to the head. 
and you can tell that these Russians were bleeding out on the right side where the machine gun was. So the machine gun, it was a 7.82 machine gun, 7.62 machine gun. So the bullets ripped to three, four bodies before they stopped. So you can tell as some military officer or soldier from these videos, you can tell because you have trained it, you have seen it, you have experienced it, and the journalists haven't. Putin says there was no cluster munitions. Oh, okay, I don't know what cluster munitions looks at this newspaper, so I will say that Putin said we haven't used it, and the United States is giving it to Ukraine. I can tell you 20, 30 times when it was used. Kramatorsk, a train station full of women and children, and the Russians fired a missile at it, and I saw the injuries. And, the and there were several, weren't there, right? There were quite a were, few, all from the uh, cluster munitions. It was, there was women and children, and there were people that were dead. And you could see from the ripped away faces and from the shredded legs, it was a cluster munition attack. And then the Ukrainians showed us the carrier, the missile carrier that brought the cluster munitions to the train station and released them above the train stations. I didn't need to see the carrier missile. I saw from the injuries, because I have seen these before, those were cluster munitions. A journalist doesn't know it. A journalist is like, what happened here? Was it a Russian missile? Was it a Ukrainian artillery shell? Maybe it was, I don't know. The thing is, military people have seen that stuff. And we know. And uh, I mean, Yehuda is an officer and David was in military. We know that stuff. We have seen it. And uh, a journalist is like, is this a mine? I know it's not a mine. It's uh, these things. If I say this is a slam, people know this is a special forces deployed mine behind Russian lines with a timer to um, activate when the Russians come here and it's used by Ukrainian special forces. If I tell a journalist this is a slam, you speak about tennis? Is it Grand Slam? Or is it slam like, um, I don't know, if this is some... Uh, there is, I cannot talk about, I don't know. I mean, I'm not expert, let's say, about fine cooking, fine dining. Uh, I don't say I want to. But if I have some wrong opinion about fine dining, I'm not damaging Ukraine's ability to defend itself and fight for itself. But I have seen journalists that come with stuff to me and I'm like, the Ukrainians lost so many Leopard 2 tanks and Bradleys in this 147th brigade attack. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, this means the Ukraine offensive has failed. No, this means that the 47th mechanized brigade is bait. They're baiting the Russians to bring their reserves forward with this brigade. This is like the British 9th Armored Brigade at El Alamein. It's bait. It sucks for this brigade, but it's the bait to, for the Russians to bring their artillery and their uh, reserves forward to hit them with HIMARS and M270 and Excalibur and such things and Panzerbits and Susanna 2 and all the other artillery systems. And if you send bait in, that is not really, if you want to bait a bear and you send put in a chicken, yeah, the bear might come and might not come. But if you put in a goat, the bear will come. And uh, um, Montgomery Field Marshal, not Field Marshal, back then General Montgomery told the 9th Brigade, you're at the bait to get Rommel to burn through all his fuel. And I'm ready to see you all killed to achieve that goal that Rommel burns through his fuel. Good luck. 230 or 400 died that afternoon. But Rommel had burned through his fuel. 
to defeat the 9th Armored Brigade, the British 9th Armored Brigade. A journalist thinks so many Leopards and Bradleys lost the Ukrainian offensive has failed. No, um, that's the bait. Because you need to destroy Russian reserves and the Ukrainians are baiting the Russians with their best brigade to bring the best Russian reserves forward. And it's working because the Ukrainians initially killed mobilized Russian men and some volunteers. And now they're killing the best Russian Marine brigades because the Russians brought them forward because the Russians have run out of mobilized men and cheap reserve, infantry reserves. Um, yeah, the 47th Brigade, is uh, it sucks to be them and there will be more losses. And I assume this brigade must have horrific amounts of casualties and injured. But for the battle plan to work, someone has to be the bait. And you can tell that this brigade was sent in with best equipment. For the Russians, this was the bait. And, and the bait and the Russians took the bait and uh, bringing, keep bringing up equipment and units and artillery to defeat this brigade. And a journalist I, cannot understand that. And I mean, you, David, probably understand it too. Yeah, well, a little bit, but I was going to be you were Thomas, on the subject. I really of... respected the way that you, over the sort of course of about forty-eight hours, and we were lucky enough to have you more frequently, how you uh, um, developed your your thoughts on that particular attack. Because um, I know initially you were sort of quite concerned about it, but then quite quickly, within twenty-four, forty-eight hours, as things were developing you were sort of reviewing and thinking about what the intention was, what it was a result of. And I really respect the fact that you do take the time to think these things through and come back and, you know, reflect on your views. And uh, Kerry, hang on. Uh, so uh, anyway, Thomas, because we were on the subject of uh, bait, um, why don't we get on to what's actually happening in the East, um, Piansk, etc. Yeah. Quick, the initial attack of the 47th Brigade looked like an attempt to force through the Russian lines. And if you looked at it like that, it was badly thought out and badly executed. And then the next few days, you saw all these videos of Russian artillery that was being destroyed, of Russian convoys moving the direction to reinforce the front line where the 47th was active, that were being destroyed, those Russian convoys. And you could tell that the Ukrainians have placed a lot of artillery and reconnaissance assets in that area, waiting for those Russian reserves to come up and try to stop the 47th. And then you have to readjust your view, because then you understand the Ukrainian goal wasn't that this 47th should break through the Russian lines and march on Melitopol. Their task was different because the Ukrainians have at least three artillery brigades waiting for the Russian reserves. That means there's immense amount of art artillery tubes and rocket artillery and HIMARS and everything. They were waiting in wait. It was an ambush. It was a well-executed ambush to destroy Russian reserves. So yes, I was critical of the initial attack because you wouldn't do an attack that way unless you're trying to bait someone into, look how easy it is to defeat the Ukrainians, let's bring more reserves up and destroy them. And it worked. And it, it keeps working because the Russians keep sending reserves forward. Because once again, we are so lucky that they are so fucking dumb, the Russians. But the Ukrainians 
there's still more than 30 brigades waiting for the offensive. And I know they're being trained right now and they're getting better equipment. The Leopard 1A5 tanks are going to these brigades. They're training every day and they're waiting. So the assessment I have is that the Ukrainians have a certain amount of Russian artillery they want to silence and of Russian reserve tanks and infantry fighting vehicles they want to destroy before they launch the real offensive. And to do that, you have to have the Russians in range of your artillery. And for the Russians, there's no reason to move their best units and their reserves into Ukrainian artillery range, unless the Ukrainians are attacking stubbornly with a really good brigade and the Russians believe that they can destroy that brigade and score a win. And the Russians keep repeating videos of how they hit the 47th Brigade. So it's pretty much working. And um, I do not know what the Ukrainian commanders consider the right amount of destroyed Russian artillery and equipment for launching the next phase of the offensive. And if I would know, I would never say. That said, it looks to me that we will have to wait till uh, late August for the Ukrainians to really, really go on the full offensive. And until then, they will use bait and artillery to degrade the Russians as much as they can, because the less artillery the Russians have and the less tanks and infantry fighting vehicles remain, and the more Russians are killed, and the more Russian depots are destroyed by storm shadow, and the more Russian officers are uh, killed in storm shadow strikes, the less Ukraine will meet resistance in the second phase of the offensive, which will break through the Russian lines with full force in a few days then. And until then, this current state will continue. It's not satisfactory. It's not what you journalists want to write and tell their viewers that, yeah, the Ukrainians are doing a very complex state and destroy of Russian. Um, the United States and Vietnam did search and destroy missions, go out, find the Viet Cong and destroy it. And the Ukrainians doing it differently. They use bait to get the Russians to come to them to be destroyed. Textbook military strategy that you can use, it works. Uh, it's just not very sexy for the Western news. It's much more sexy to write the Ukrainian offensive has failed when in fact... This is phase one, which in the West is usually an air campaign, like in the first Gulf War, 37 days of 100,000 fighter missions where they bombed 100,000 times. They went out there to drop bombs on the Iraqis before the ground forces began their attack. So we're in this phase, which in the West is usually air attacks, cruise missile attacks, ballistic missile attacks ship-launched cruise missile attacks, tomahawks, and so on. And the Ukrainians don't have all that, so they're doing this bait-and-destroy approach, which I have to admit works. It's not sexy, but it works. So uh, we've got the uh, reports, of course, from the uh, uh, deputy um, minister. I can't remember her name, I'm afraid. We're talking about the how uh, things are working along there, down in uh, uh, Liman, uh, Kum, uh, Kupiansk. And uh, they're talking about the, how the uh, they might be heading towards, I guess, the Ozkil River. Um, what do you know about that? Uh, 
Thomas. I haven't seen any European intelligence agency speak about a Russian 100,000 troops up there in the north. And with all the signal intelligence, uh, satellite intelligence, I doubt that the European intelligence agencies have all missed 100,000 Russian troops massing somewhere in the north of Luhansk for an offensive towards uh, Liman. And I'm like, and if you look at the Russian war bloggers, none of them has mentioned anything and you haven't seen movement because you would see, you know, 100,000 troops would be so many trucks coming in with supplies and food and the Ukrainians would high-mars a ton of that into oblivion. Nothing. So I, I don't think that this is true. Can I be sure? No. But the feeling is that from everything we have seen, um, it's not happening that the Russians have 100,000 troops out there. And more interestingly, um, uh, if you look at Gherkin, the Russian war criminal, who who is a war criminal and has a daily block and he hates Putin, you know? And if you listen to him, you can hear in the subtext that every single Russian regiment at the front is under strength. Now, the guy hates Putin. He is uh, also hating Prigozhin. He hates everyone except for himself. He started the war in Ukraine. Um, it's really um, not... That... Have I lost uh, sound or is that Thomas? He lost sound, sorry. I lost sound, sorry. I, my bad. Where did we stop? Uh, you, the war criminal. The war criminal. So he has... Uh, podcast in Russian, you can listen to it, and you can hear from him that the Russian units are all severely understrength, and even the elite units, and even the units that are in the hottest spots of the front are all understrength. So if the Russians have not the ability to refill key units that hold key parts of the front, the Russians don't have the ability to create a 120,000 man strong army for a surprise attack from a completely different direction. So I'm trying to warn people, Gherkin is a Russian, a Russian fascist, nationalist, war criminal, despicable being. He is very tuned into the troops on the ground. He started the war in Donbass on behalf of Putin. He commanded the forces in Donbass in the first half year of the war against the Ukrainians. He was executing Ukrainians that didn't like Russia left and right. He shot down MH17, the um, Malaysian plane full of Dutch and Australian and Malaysian people. Uh, so he's not a really good source, but you know, his depressed complaining is a good hint because when he's upbeat, start worrying, but the guy is completely depressed. And he was very depressed before Kupiansk last year. He said, this is impossible to hold the first guards tank armies at 20% strength. What are they doing to put it in charge up there? He um, said that the units in Hershen are 30% before they had to retreat. So he hears from the troops at the front, the Russian side, 
scripts stuff, but never makes it up the Russian chain of command, and he speaks it out. Uh, he also has an obnoxious hatred of Ukrainian and the West, and he's a pure fascist, so don't, don't take him as a source for anything else. But you can hear from him that the Russian units are struggling to uh, fill the ranks to 70%. And at that point, you know, if you have and there's the Russian units who have a lack of small ammo for their Kalashnikovs and machine guns, and that's a disastrous situation for an army when you lack small arms ammo because basically that's what the troops need in the trenches. So, and he always calls Putin the happy grandpa because obviously he hates Putin and knows that he doesn't. He says Russia needs a mobilization of another 300,000 men, which Putin doesn't want to do because it would undermine his rule because he would have to take also men out of Moscow and St. Petersburg. So all these details, Ukraine not shooting down a ton of Russian convoys in northern Luhansk, NATO's all intelligence agencies not seeing any kind of uh, Russian forces massing in Luhansk, Russia's most connected to the troops, uh, war criminals, saying that the Russian units are struggling with filling up the ranks. I don't think there's 100,000 some Russians behind their Luhans waiting for an offensive. I think that's what a lot of people were thinking, isn't it? I mean, and when you, you talk about the 70% that Gherkin was talking about, that would be the maximum, you know, the most full they'll be. So on average, maybe they're only 50%, right? And there were... And where would they be, right? As you know, you know um, hiding 100,000 people and 600 tanks and, uh, uh, you know, 600 APCs is a very, very difficult process, isn't it? You can't because you have to feed those guys in the amount of trucks going in and out, uh, from hiding it from NATO satellites, hiding it from... NATO signals intelligence, you know, all this chatter that is going back and forth between all those units and all those trucks coming in with supplies. And you would have bring it in towards the front, you know, and then Ukraine with the drones would spot it and timers it out of existence. And there's Ukrainians all over the South that are reporting Russian movements. There was a Russian volunteer who is going into the South of Ukraine to help the Russian sympathizers there with food and clothes. And he says... 70% or more of the people hate the Russians in the south of Ukraine that is occupied. And not just hate, they report every single movement by Russian troops to the Ukrainian army. So um, these are hundreds of thousands of people. And that none of them reports to the Ukrainians. I just saw a Russian convoy or a Russian battalion or there's a Russian unit hiding out in a school in my village. Storm shadow are used to hit Russian concentration of forces and ammunition. If you have 100,000 troops hiding out there, there's tent cities, there are schools that have been occupied, every hall of a agricultural company where they have nothing inside is full of Russian troops sleeping on the ground. If there's any Ukrainian around that sees it and reports it back, you would have storm shadows coming in the next hour or two hours later to smash these Russians sleeping there and nothing. The Ukrainians concentrate all the fire on the south. So they don't see any Russian concentrations that are a danger in Luhansk because if it were, the Ukrainians would 
go after it and destroy it. I mean, as long as the Russians are clustered around some tent city, you can really hit them with a Tochka full of cluster munitions. Or you, if they're in a school building, you hit it with two storm shadow and you kill half of them. Nothing. So the Russians are in the south. And there the Ukrainians are striking them round the clock, killing their general commanding officers, killing um, um, their signal stations, destroying their ammunition depots, hitting their... Um, it's very simple. This general comes to some place. He goes to an hotel. This hotel, there are some Ukrainians who work there or see. Tom one puts his phone out in a corner and types in. And there's some apps for that. Russian general just arrived. Three stars. And then deletes the app. The Ukrainians say, ooh, so nice. There's a wonderful story of a Ukrainian um, partisan who basically signed up for the Russian military. So the Russians put him into Rostov for training because he knew if he as a, Russian, a Ukrainian from the south signs up for the Russians to fight for the Russians, they will train him and then put him into a unit, right? And this Ukrainian partisan in the south had a trust of the Ukrainian partisan managing command. He signed up. The Russians took him to Russia. They trained him. They put him into a battalion, a small battalion, sent the battalion into Ukraine. The battalion stayed at some place at, at the beginning of May to basically get their orders. He said he went, he went to the bathroom. In the bathroom, he com communicated to his Handler in Kiev, I'm at this place, coordinates are this. There's a few hundred Russian soldiers here who are waiting for their orders to go to the front. I will um, leave this place in 20 minutes to take a walk and go pee in the woods. And he came back and he got also caught up in the blast and injured, but 100 plus Russians died and 150 something were injured. Him too. He was brought back to Russia. And he's like, yes. And then when I'm healthy again, the Russians put me in the next platoon, uh, next battalion and sent me into Ukraine again, and we will repeat that story, then a storm shadow hits it. He hopes to survive it, but right now, you know, he's helping kill 100 to 150 Russians every time the Russians send a battalion with him inside into Ukraine. And there's 10,000s of such people in southern Ukraine and eastern Ukraine, so that the Russians can hide 100,000 men from all these eyes and ears I don't believe it. Absolutely not. It and, was difficult to fathom, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, 10,000, yes. You can have them sleep in tents and dispersed. You can have even 20,000. There's lots of woods there. And tell us, you always four guys sleep in a tent and the next guys must be 20, 30 meters away. And, and you have the food in your backpack and you get just once a week some food and you will starve, but, you know, we hide you. But then still someone would notice that the forests are swarming with Russians every 50 meters, 20 yards, and that they're all sleeping in tents in groups of four. Someone would notice. And then you can just uh, use a dodgka with cluster munitions to hit it. And yeah, long story short, uh, nothing. No reports of that sort, no videos, no attacks, uh, no Ukrainians trying to reinforce the front lines, no Russians, uh, anything. So I don't think it's true. I think the Russians tried to make that story for idiots like we spoke earlier. So they can say the Russians are about to attack any moment now. Ukraine must surrender before it happens. And I'm like, the United States 
National Reconnaissance Office with its keyhole satellites can see from space what kind of flip-flops a Taliban in the mountains of Afghanistan is wearing in the night. They don't see any 100,000 Russians in those trees, in those villages. And if they don't see it, uh, nobody has better, no one has better intelligence capabilities in this world than the United States United National Reconnaissance Office with its satellites. Just to give you an idea, a few years ago, the National Reconnaissance Office told NASA, we built some spy satellites in the 80s and we built two more cameras as spares. Those satellites are now not in use anymore. Would you like to have these two spare cameras that are almost 30 years old? And NASA, NASA was like, what the hell we don't? Okay, give it to us. The National Reconnaissance Office gave those cameras to NASA and NASA figured out those cameras were five times better than the camera NASA had built for the Hubble Space Telescope. Space Telescope. And since then, National Reconnaissance Office has sent two more generations of better spy satellites into space. So if the National Reconnaissance Office, with its 20, 23, 24 billion budget, that is almost as big as NASA's budget, cannot find Russians in northern Luhansk, they are not there. And exactly. I've hit... But and if, hit no, if sorry. we do not know anything. The problem at the moment, we do not know anything. The signals from the Ukrainian side were that uh, Russian troops were uh, massing in three uh, corridors, and that's fine. But there was no indication of numbers up until earlier today, I think, David, when people started, uh, should we say, spreading in individual news pieces. But they never said that it came from Budanov or anyone. They just said that some people report, you know, some say, as they would say. So we should treat we should treat this carefully. But Thomas, if and when the Russians were to try a Hail Mary, um, they would definitely go for uh, encircling, uh, say, going past Kremina and go for Liman, correct? They would try it up there in the hope that the Ukrainian offensive brigades and reserves are not up there. And the poor Russians are in for a surprise because the Ukrainians have reserves everywhere on the front and artillery brigades and ammo and stuff. And um, yes, the, the Russians could make a local tactical success, cross a river, take some villages. But, you know, Ukraine has the interior lines. That means the Russians, if they want to move some units from the south to the east, they have to go all the way to Mariupol and then all into Russia and then outside of Russia up to Luhansk and there. And the Ukrainians can just move inside, you know, it's much a shorter route. So if the Russians really should try to attack, let's say with 30,000 troops in Liman, the Ukrainians can have in 24 hours or in 48 hours, 20, 30,000 troops up there. Yes, it would slow down the offensive, but it wouldn't stop the offensive. And yes, uh, the Russians could try it, but it wouldn't succeed. Why? Because in the end, Battle of the Bulge, the Germans attacked 
between the British and American lines, hoping to split the Brits to the north and the Americans to the south. And they had a success because nobody expected an attack from the Germans because they seemed exhausted and they moved in. But the problem was the Germans hoped that it wouldn't happen and that they could prevent was Hatton's army to the south of the bulge was massive. It was rested. It had an immense amount of motorization. And Patton managed to basically turn, swing, his, swing his army around, move it northwards and attack the German flank of its advance. And the Germans had to retreat. So if the Russians even managed to break through to the south, the Ukrainians have 100,000 troops for the offensive. And the Ukrainians could just swing around 30,000, 40,000 men to the north take the Russians in the flank. And as I said earlier, with machine gunning down a Russian squad that is moving in a line, if you can attack your enemy from the side, that's his weakest point always. If you have a tank and you hit it from the side, that's the weakest armor. If you have an advancing army and you can hit it from the side, where it's on weakest because, you know, the tip of the spear, the best troops are usually in front, the tanks and the infantry fighting vehicles. Um, the Russians could try, but there's no way that they could succeed unless they, like the North Koreans, suddenly have half a million Chinese troops that pop out of nowhere and help them. So, yeah. Uh, do you think the Chinese are giving the Russians half a million soldiers for a Hail Mary? Uh, no. Have the Russians managed to train 120,000 troops and equip them and hide them? from everyone? No. Have the Russians 20,000, 30,000 reserve troops in northern Luhansk? Yes, they have, because they had also that in the south, which Ukraine is right now baiting and destroying. So yes, 20, 30,000 possible because the Russians have this kind of troops in logistics, in air defense, in artillery, in reserve troops in the rear. 120,000? more troops than on D-Day, and the Russians managed to hide it completely with today's intelligence and reconnaissance capabilities of the West. Okay. If they did that, then we have to ask ourselves if the Russians have some cloaking device like the Klingons, because I doubt it very much they can do it. And there'll be a point with the noise they're making. Of course, there would be a, a reason for them to try and say they were doing something, isn't there? Because they would be desperate to take off pressure from the south and see if they could get the Ukrainians to do something really foolish, despite the fact they've never done anything really foolish. Yes, we don't see it. So, um, and I think this is the same kind of nonsense that is meant for people who say that Russia has four times the artillery and ten times the ammunition than Ukraine. You know, the village idiots. Because the officers I know and those also that are read into the intelligence, none of them has ever mentioned something like that or worries about them. Their main concern is that Ukraine needs more artillery shells to keep the bait and destroy thing going on because you need thousands of artillery shells a day and HIMARS a day and if you run out of that the whole bait and destroy plan stops working so the question is really as you said earlier 
um, no matter which number of troops they have where, do they have uh, the logistics to sustain whatever kind of Hail Mary pass attacks they do wherever they do them? And uh, there is very little to suggest at this point in time that the Russians could support any such attacks. Even if they were to make some tactical gains, these would only be there in order to trigger response in the West. But they would not be able to sustain it because the Ukrainians can actually do defense in depth quite well by now and would counterattack. And the Ukrainians have a lot of reserves. The Ukrainians have 35... Okay, they have engaged five brigades and then have pulled back two brigades from the initial attack. They pulled two more brigades out of the front for the offensive preparations. The offensive guard brigades are still in training. So let's assume that even in the worst case scenario, the Ukrainians have a dozen to 18 brigades in reserve for contingencies, either to go on the offensive when they find a break in the Russian line or 12, 18 brigades to move to counter a Russian attack somewhere on the line. And since the Ukrainians have interior lines, you know, um, most of these Ukrainian brigades are way out of Russian artillery and missile range, but close enough to reach the front in one, two days in case they're needed. So uh, even if the Russians manage to break through in one day, they can make 30 kilometers and uh, the next day they have 20,000 Ukrainians ahead of them. And yeah. yeah, the Russians have failed at operational art since day one of this war. Shoigu and Gerasimov are idiots. The only people that promote Gerasimov are the only people who promote Gerasimov as a genius are those that have been compromised by the Russian uh, SVR Foreign Intelligence Service. No one in Western military circles thinks Gerasimov is smart. He is loyal and he is not imaginative, and that's why he is no risk to Putin and why he keeps him in power. And uh, that these guys suddenly developed operational intelligence when at the same time they're firing the generals who are seen as the most competent Russian generals, like the guy in the south, they've pop off their fire just now. Uh, now, the Russians are removing their smartest and most competent generals because they speak out against the stupid nonsense from the center in Moscow. And yeah. I don't think that the Russians are capable of an operational art. I mean, they're just, the idea we can, every plan they had was just garbage and nonsense. Yes, they killed a lot of Ukrainians because they had mass and they didn't care for Russian losses. But operational art or brilliance or strategic uh, planning or tactical successes, yes, they took Bakhmut. Cool. You have Bakhmut. So what is now happening? Does it open something? Does it use a, is it a springboard for something? Can you interdict something? Is this a stronghold from where you can dominate the enemy? No, nothing. You just have Bakhmut. It's the most worthless city you can take. And the Russians threw an immense amount of troops there. The Ukrainians killed an immense amount of troops and lost a lot of Ukrainians there. But ultimately, Bakhmut is just a city. It doesn't open operationally or strategically any 
to give you an idea, the United States took Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima allowed Americans a base close enough to Japan to provide their bombers with fighter escorts. Very good. It has a strategic objective. That's why the United States needed Iwo Jima. And the losses the Marines suffered there were deemed necessary to ensure the United States strategic bombing campaign of Japan continues and reduces its losses against Japanese fighters. Strategic goal, tactical success made sense. So taking Bakhmut, any strategic operational thing that it opened? No. So the Russians have zero, none whatsoever operational strategic art shown because Gerasimov is an idiot and those people who praise him and his fake doctrine are those people who are compromised by the SVR and try to ingratiate them with their Russian handlers. Yeah, and we discussed the uh, fallacies of their um, own brigade setup and the lack of follow-on forces and infantry and all the logistics concerns already in quite some detail. Thomas, would you allow me if we could just go to a couple of hands because some people yes, have please, please, for please. quite some time. Please, um, please. Actually, I would start with Cajun because I know that he has a question coming up in that regard and then move from there to G-Man, Randy and then Alex. Cajun, please. Thanks, uh, Axel. Uh, it's always great to hear you on the space, Thomas. A uh, couple things. Uh, just want to make a couple quick statements and then I have uh, kind of a, a question I'd like for you to chime in on. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the change in behavior in Erdogan, you know, in, in, in poker, you call it a tell. Um, if, if Erdogan thought that the war would end in stalemate, he wouldn't have changed his outward comments towards uh, Ukraine or towards uh, um, Sweden's uh, uh, ascension into NATO. But, if it was going to be a tie or Ukraine, he thought it was going to be a tie or Ukrainian uh, loss, he would still play both sides of the fence. But his change of behavior tells me, or it seems to be obvious, that Erdogan thinks Ukraine's going to be the winner and the big winner. And Erdogan wants to be on the winning side, just as you, as you spoke. I think uh, that that's an incredibly important observation and, and, and is worth repeating. Um the the next thing I wanted to talk about briefly about these hundred thousand troops that are that might be hiding somewhere. One of the things that's really interesting, and we can all see it, is whenever you have drone footage of Russian troops anywhere in a trench line, there's just piles of trash everywhere, and inside in the middle of the trash pile is a hole with Russians hiding in it. There's no way you can hide a hundred thousand Russian troops because they can't police their trash. You could see it from space; it would be so big. Uh, <laughs> Lastly, uh, in regards to the Ukrainian offensive, you know, uh, Ukraine or this summer, let's just say, uh, Ukraine has very different goals than Russia. Russia needs to, the Russian Federation would like to attrit the Russian troops and, uh, uh, Russian, excuse me, Ukrainian army and end up with a stalemated fast. I think that's probably the best they can hope for at this moment. So at this time, engagement uh, and Russian casualties are probably the only, what they think, honest measure of progress from their point. If they're taking losses, um, they must think that, they're, that, that Ukraine is also taking losses. On the other hand, the Ukrainians have a completely different goal in mind. The, the Ukrainians 
are not playing this for stalemate. They're playing this to win. And they're playing this to win decisively. So the Ukrainians are going to engage when they can have incredibly favorable exchange rates on their side, where they'll kill Russians at more than three to one, five to one. There was some talk around Bakhmut lately that it's been up to like eight and ten to one that uh, uh, Ukrainians have been killing Russians. And this kind of rope-a-dope strategy in the south where the 47th Brigade goes out, grabs some attention, and then uh, the the Russians roll in reserves to get smacked by Artie is just another example of, you know, uh, Ukrainians pushing or favoring this uh, strategy that gives them uh, favorable exchange rates and that they need to wear down the Russians so that they can win decisively. They don't have the air power uh, because we won't give them the airplanes to be able to fight a desert storm type war an extensive air campaign, they have to do it, as you said, um, with conventional forces and conventional artillery. But the goal here from the Ukrainian side is to take all the 1991 territory back, to decisively defeat the Russian military, and have an army and a citizenship left to rebuild the country once it's over. And that's going to take some careful planning and careful time, uh, careful planning and some time on the Ukrainians' part. so from that standpoint, Thomas, with the goal on victory, no one should be really surprised at this at the pace of this quote counteroffensive. Don't you think? Yep, absolutely. The Ukrainians are <clears throat> sorry. The Ukrainians are choosing to lose few Ukrainian troops at the exchange rates against Russian losses that are horrific for the Russians. The Ukrainians are pretty chill with their timeline. You can tell it's more important to them to win this at low costs to their own soldiers because they lost a lot already and they don't want to lose more because until now they had to defend and were forced by the Russians into the battles that the Russians choose. Now the Ukrainians can choose the battles. And they're choosing it wisely and in a way to not lose too many troops. And artillery is helping them. And the more artillery they get, you know, they haven't gotten a lot of new artillery systems recently. But if possible, European nations should send more (coughs) crops and archers and M109 paladins from the US and M777s and Caesars and lots more shells, especially cluster munition shells, to help Ukraine wreck the Russian numbers even further. And the Ukrainians are having a very different timetable. I was surprised because I assumed the Ukrainians would go for a more um, aggressive approach. But then when you look at it, you can tell that the Ukrainians decided that aggressive approach might be successful, but it will cost many Ukrainian lives. And they decided that uh, Ukrainian lives are more valuable than finishing a few days earlier or a few weeks earlier. So you can tell that their main concern is now to basically, the 47th Brigade is a purely um, volunteer brigade which someone described as me who has met them as in, in tr- someone who has met them in training as very motivated 
Um, so they're using them probably knowingly that the troops know it, that their duty is to bait the Russians into wasting their reserves to open a gap and the possibility for a Ukrainian offensive that can defeat the Russians in the south. Uh, it will take time and the Ukrainians take the time because they want to win it and win it in a way that destroys the danger that Russia poses to Ukraine for many, many years to come. And it's not politically correct to say it, but destroy the future danger of Russia, you have to kill its entire officer corps. The more of the officers and instructors you manage to kill in Ukraine, the longer it will take Russia to rebuild a army that can challenge Ukraine. This gives Ukraine a breathing space to put a gap militarily between itself and Russia with European help that makes a Russian continued attack against Ukraine as futile as Arab attempts to attack Israel in 67. In 73, the Israelis were a little bit surprised, but ultimately they crushed the Arabs too. So Ukraine needs this time, and it's not correct to say it. So, but Ukraine taking back territory is a way to win a war. Destroying the enemy's army is a way to win the war. Annihilating the enemy army, and especially the officer corps, secures years of peace while the enemy has to rebuild. Equipment can rebuild faster, but a competent colonel or major takes years, a decade, to get going. So that's why the Ukrainians, I think, take more time and are much more thorough than we expect them to do. Um, yeah, they're looking to kill as many Russian generals and officers and artillery systems right now as possible. 100%, Thomas. And, and I think it's very telling that Ukraine used the 47th Brigade with Bradleys and Leopards because those vehicles allow for the greatest crew survivability I mean, in the videos that the, the Russians and Vatniks keep portraying of the single day when some vehicles were lost, the vast majority of those troops and those vehicles were uninjured, and they lived to fight another day, and most of those vehicles have been recovered at this point. So it's very telling that the Ukrainians are not husbanding their best vehicles for the offensive uh, that'll to, to take territory back, but they're also using these these uh, units uh, to protect their own soldiers as they do the most dangerous work to bait in these Russian reserves. And once the Russian reserves are gone, you break through the front lines and it's and and, and the hounds are loose. Yep, but we don't know when that is. But the point you made, it didn't even occur to me. I thought that the Ukrainians are using leopards and Bradleys because this is a bait that the Russians cannot ignore. But as you said, this didn't occur to me first. It also means that the Ukrainians give these troops that are the bait the best chance of survival by having them in the best available equipment. Yeah, so you see, if you look at this Ukrainian current strategy, it makes quite sense. Not sexy, it's not easy to understand. It's so well thought out and multi-layered and the Ukrainians are not doing it at the speed that the Western press or the Western 
the viewers of this war expect, and you know, they have been doing uh, putting out videos. The Ukrainians also saying, "If we are silent, it doesn't mean that we are not busy." So yes, they, um, as, as you just said, it's something that I didn't occur to me, but it gives another layer to the Ukrainian strategy of what they're doing right now, and it shows that this is not some haphazard attacks as it looked first, but it's a well-planned-out plan that uh, costs a few units, much equipment, and probably also many wounded and killed right now, but ultimately it's the price that has to be paid for the success at the end. And a general is always measured at the end if the overall battle or campaign has been won, and not if in the initial stages there were losses and two sides yeah. of a coin exactly yeah. and there, there's there's one of the problems that we have in the media is that so much of of recent military uh history are colored by some uh campaigns by the united states army where the, the focus of the united states army is to hurry up and win and get home before everybody gets tired of the war so in the in the u.s we need it to be over with as soon as possible because we want to go home well, <laughs> the uh, the Ukrainians are home, so uh, they and they need to have enough countrymen alive at the end of the war to be uh, to be able to have a home, to be have a to have a future, and to your point, uh, Thomas, to be able to deter Russian aggression into the future. Thanks, guys. I'm going to go on mute. It's been great as always, Thomas. Take care. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Cajun. Thank you very much for your input. And yes, so. I wanted to say something to answer you, but I forgot it now because it was so important to, for me to thank you. So it will come back to me later. It was something to do about um, the United. Yes, the United States Army goes in earlier times, like in the first Gulf War. The United States Army stayed put and the United States Marine Corps and let the Air Force bomb the Iraqis for thirty-seven days. Why? Because at that point, the United States Air Force had a lot of equipment to bomb, but very few precision-guided munitions. And so the United States didn't want you know, to have the U.S. Army clash with the Iraqis when the Air Force then drops bombs and many of those are dumb and come down and might hit United States units. By the 2003 Gulf War, the U.S. Air Force was completely moved from dump bombs that you just drop and hope it hits to precision-guided munitions. And the United States Army and Marine Corps and the British Army immediately crossed the border with Iraq in that war, 2003. They were the bait forcing the Iraqis to move out of the cities because the Americans and Brits were moving through the desert bypassing the cities. So these were the bait, forcing the Iraqis to come out of the cities to fight the Americans that were advancing. And then out of the cities, the US Air Force had like a beautiful time, a turkey shoot, to bomb these Iraqi tanks and units and infantry with everything they had. Precision guided munitions, cluster munitions, carpet bombing. And the 3rd Infantry Division moved directly to Baghdad and 82nd Airborne, 101st Airborne were securing the uh, supply lines through the desert, while the first armored, the first of the third armored British division took Basra, 
by uh, moved through the desert and the U.S. 1st Marine Division um, covered the flank of the 3rd Infantry Division. So very smart plan, but it was only made possible because the U.S. Air Force was so dominant, could fly anywhere at any time, could have 100 fighter jets and bombers in the air above the divisions, circling like vultures, waiting for some Iraqis to pop up continuously. And the U.S. divisions acted as the bait that got the Iraqis to come out into the desert where they could be destroyed by the air power. The Ukrainians don't have that, but we are used to this kind of image. You know, the American army goes in and drives down and smites, uh, destroys the enemy when it's all air power with the divisions doing the smallest amount of fighting because... uh, that could cost American lives. It's much easier to bait the Iraqis to come out and then smite them from the air. And Ukraine doesn't have that, and it will never have it. That's the point, because nobody can match the United States Air Force. It's just an, it's an alien force compared to the rest of these planet's air forces. It's so far out in capabilities and equipment, it's just unbelievable. So um, long story short, Ukraine can't fight like the US. US. Ukraine, no country can fight like the US. And the expectations are always that everyone will fight like the US. And if you don't do it, it's a failure. And it's not. And patience. uh, I mean, people are saying the Azerbaijani offensive failed in 2020. After three days, I said that the Armenians have lost this war. It's over. They should surrender because there's nothing they can do to against this operational plan of the Azerbaijanis to move into the south that is difficult to defend and then move up one valley while fixing the Armenian troops in two other valleys so the Azerbaijanis could just split the Armenian southern front in half and Putin at that point was still thought of as a strong leader and he intervened the day before the Azerbaijanis would have taken the main city of the Armenians in Azerbaijan and crushed them. And the only reason that this war wasn't a complete crushing, it was a crushing defeat for the Armenians, but they retained some Armenian settled part inside Azerbaijan and controls still the biggest Armenian settled city inside Azerbaijan because Putin intervened the last night before the Azerbaijanis would have crushed, completely crushed the Armenians and not just taken their main city but encircled 20,000 Armenian troops in a cauldron and smashed them. So people were saying this is a failure because there was no big fight in the air and no tank battles, but you if, once you understood the Azerbaijani strategy, it was clear after three days, this war is over. The Armenians don't have the troops, the air power, or the artillery to stop what's coming. And it took another 40 days and 4,000 deaths for the Armenians to surrender. So what the Ukrainians are doing was initially confusing. But when you then got more information about what they're looking to destroy, Russian officers, commands, Post ammunition and artillery made all sense. Uh, so, yes, we are still in this first phase. No idea how long it will take. 
I hope we will have some good news by the Ukrainian Independence Day on August 24th, so, so that we can celebrate something. Uh, but, you know, um, the weather that is susceptible to offensive operations in southern Ukraine lasts into early October, then begins the wet season, the muddy season, when the troops don't want to be out there in the wood, in the muddy stuff, but they want to be somewhere inside or sheltered from the rain and mud. So you have August four weeks, September four weeks, six. Yeah, you have 10, 11 weeks until the Ukrainians should have done, should be done with the offensive. So yeah, we don't need to stress them because so far their plan shows careful planning, well thought out steps and the losses are a calculated risk that is needed for a greater success. So let's go to the hands because it's midnight and we have to do the hands now. Okay, uh, then I, I believe it was G-Man, Alex and then Randy in that. In the, uh, They'll all have very tired hands by now, but I think that's the order. Evening, Thomas. Um, how are you? So um, I've got a question from a listener, which I'll now try and find again. Um, yeah, so a listener asked the question about the small diameter bomb that supposedly is being sent in the fall, which as far as I know, believe, um, is autumn. Um, so that was that. And then the other thing is that I heard your uh, verdict or the um, Prognosis, I suppose, is a better word on the UK, the state of the UK uh, military, basically, um, which unfortunately I can't argue with. Um, although on paper, with the spending we have, we should be, we should be feeling a much better force than we are. Um, the question on that would be, if Sunak comes true, comes through with his pledge to increase our spending to two and a half percent of GDP, which is I think is terribly low, given that we're effectively in a war time situation. Um but if it goes to two and a half percent or it goes to three percent as it was previously pledged, what would be the number one priority in your view that we should spend that extra percent of GDP on defence on. Sorry. So two questions there. Hopefully um, you got that. Ground launch small diameter bombs and the British Army defence spending priorities. Um, I hope it's correct. And Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, I'll be defense, but yeah, I'll go with Army because, yeah, you know, that's where the, that's where the, the meat's going to hit the, uh, uh, whatever. <laughs> That's where the top priority, I think, is given that our army could fit into Wembley Stadium. Yep. And uh, let's put it this way the ground launch small diameter bomb is an excellent system that Boeing and Saab promised to deliver to Ukraine as soon as possible. The United States ordered it, and then Saab and Boeing were like, yes, but we haven't had, we haven't yet built the production line. <laughs> The production line is right now being built and they're doing uh, at extreme speeds. 
and they have to integrate the software then from their test launchers into the HIMARS because the soldiers need to be able to just press the same buttons as always and the bomb has to fly and hit as planned without them having to put any special things in. So um, status right now is unknown. The promise is it will be ready in fall and it will come in great numbers this fall. If it does, it will be really, really helpful because it will give Ukraine an ability to strike a lot more Russian targets, whereas now they have to use Storm Shadow for that range, which is expensive and complex, and um, they have to program it on the airbase, hook the missile up to the uh, Su-24 plane, fly to the release area, release it, and the uh, uh, missile then cruises at low altitude to the target before it goes up to identify the target and then dives onto the target to avoid air defense systems. Ground launch, small diameter bomb, much cheaper, can be launched from HIMARS much more uh, speedily because once you have the coordinates, you don't have to fly there or program it. You just enter the coordinates into the computer and launch in a minute. So you can hit Russian targets faster and quicker. Um, still, ground launch, small diameter bomb, warhead is smaller than storm shadow, so not as powerful. Range is less, but it's more range than the GMLRS, unitary warhead rocket. Uh, still, the best thing that Ukraine could receive now are M26 cluster munition warheads from Turkey, Greece, and other countries that still have them, especially South Korea or Saudi Arabia. I mean, you could buy them back. You couldn't buy it as a country like Britain who has signed the cluster munitions convention, but you could buy it as Poland and give it to Ukraine from Saudi Arabia. So this is a tool to strike in timely manner Russian objects, not bunkers, but the ground launch small diameter bomb which is basically an M26 cluster munitions rocket engine section mated with a glide bomb. So um, Ukrainians getting M26 and M26 with a, a glide bomb on top would be ideal. Then you have the combination of something short range to strike Russians with cluster munitions and something long range to strike Russian signal stations, Russians uh, in maintenance posts, Russian sleeping quarters, and so on. And for example, I said, how do you, a uh, long time ago in a media report, someone asked how to take out the Russian helicopters that pester Ukrainian frontline units. And I said, strike the buildings where the pilots sleep. And Ukraine did that two days later, which shows that, you know, military people think alike and the Russians haven't been really pestering Ukrainians since. And yeah, um, so ground launch small diameter bombs helps in this regard because the reaction times between spotting some Russians and hitting them is shorter. And I wish Saab and Boeing wouldn't have been so lazy or shy about getting production up and running because this cost Ukraine almost half a year of waiting and it's annoying. But it's coming, it will work, it will help Ukraine. So I'm very happy about it because it's an excellent system and it's cheaper than GMLRS.
in the end because it recycles a rocket engine that usually would have been thrown away or used for a target round and uses a cheap dump bomb with a kit that makes it a glide bomb that can cover long distances and strike at Russian targets. Like if you have some Russian trucks waiting in line because there's some damage to the road, you can use six of those launched from a high Mars or even 12 of those GDBLS rounds launched from a 2M70 and hit each Russian truck with a single bomb in a few minutes so before they can continue their journey. So yeah, a good system. Um, Boeing and Saab produced it, hoping to sell it to the UK, sell it to Finland. Nobody wanted to buy it, but now that they finally have a production line, you will see everybody will go to buy it because it's cheaper than the GMLRS rocket with double the range. Now to the British Army, if your question about GD ground launch small diameter bombs has been answered. Good. British Army. NATO expects, the United States mostly, expects that if they go into war in Europe, the United Kingdom will provide an armored division, a full armored division, not some, let's like have two brigades or one brigade and some light infantry. No, a full armored division with Three armored brigades with modern tanks, modern infantry fighting vehicles, modern artillery. The United States expects that whatever American division is on the front, to its left or to its right, will be a British armored division. And the American soldiers and the American commanders know this division will fight. This division will not crumble. We can rely on this division on our flank. Right now, they can't. Because the Challenger 2 is so outdated and there are so few left. And the Challenger 3 is going into production, but in such small numbers that it will be just enough for two brigades. The Warrior, the infantry fighting vehicle is junk. The AS-19 is desperate to be updated or replaced by AHS crap or something crap from Poland or something else it needs more air defense to the army it needs um a new infantry fighting vehicle it needs more engineer equipment and so on and it needs the capability to deploy from the uk to a front in europe and right now the united uh, the british army can't and if the british government truly spends 2.5 2.5% on defense, rebuilding a combat-capable, deployable armored division that the United States can rely on in a high-intensity war is the main priority. The Italians are exactly doing that. Their armored division consists of just two brigades because the third brigade has no tank battalion, it didn't get infantry fighting vehicles, it lacks artillery, it lacks logistics and engineers. The Italian short-term plan is to get this division back into shape and make sure that if called upon, Italy can provide one fully equipped, fully trained, fully manned 
armored division that will stand and fight and not crumble. Plus, Italy will be providing two brigades on wheeled infantry fighting vehicles and one, two light brigades as needed. Key priority in Europe is, as we see in Ukraine, armor and all European countries except for Poland lack in that regard. There you go. But you know, let's go to Alex. Um, Alex, and then ready. Yeah. Thank you. I had a quick question um, about. Uh, it looks like Russia is trying to ramp up their drones production. They showed um, a facility uh, with uh, two hundred thousand drones, Lancets. And uh, also in St. Petersburg, they are making ramping up productions of um, a new drone. Uh, they their capacity is about three thousand a month. My question is like, what do you really need to make a drone? I guess camera is important. Where where do they get those? They don't make them. They that's one thing. And the other thing is where they can use those drones and w- what is the risk? Are they uh, can they be used uh, instead of the rockets, which they're also trying to ramp up production? Uh, Lancet drones are currently a nuisance. If the Russians really ramp up production to that numbers, it becomes a problem. And yes, the Russians can produce, they can produce the engines and the wings, but they can produce the key ex- uh, aspects, which are uh, the uh, camera because Russian optics are horrific they look like something uh, from the 90s some mobile phone camera testing from the 90s because the Russians are so backwards they get them from China some Chinese company is selling them these cameras cheaply through five companies in between and yes and then the communication package with which the Russians communicate, you know, and encrypt the communication with their drones. It's also coming from China, likely from Huawei, because that's the only company that really can make that, and or some other company like it. So, yeah, the Chinese are selling Russians components. You can be sure of that. The West should be ramping up production of systems to counter that, not just because Ukrainians need it, because we will need it too jammers, uh, energy weapons, laser weapons, and especially something like the Gepard, which is a 40-year-old system. So we need to get into production with a successor like the Skynex as soon as possible. And uh, the Russians, I doubt they can really make that production because, you know, the Russians, first thing that the managers do is steal a lot of money from the production. That's always, that happens everywhere. It's the main thing that why you get into Russian government, it's to can steal a lot of money from the government. So if the Russians can produce that, doubtful. If they can use it, the Ukrainians need to have jammers everywhere because once you jam their communications, the drone will not will miss because, you know, they cannot steer it. Better if you have some high energy weapon, like a microwave weapon that sends out microwaves to fry the chips, or some laser weapon to fry the whole drone, or you have some Skynex or Gepard system to basically blow the drone out of the sky. At that point, 
those drones be don't become a problem. And right now, the Europeans and Americans are not really putting the effort into producing the jammers and not putting the effort into uh, the counter system. Why? Because the assumption is if the United States or NATO goes to war, they wouldn't bother destroying the drones that are in flight. They would immediately destroy the factory producing them. Then they would destroy the depots where these drones are stored. And then they would deploy fighter jets to find the operators to operate these drones and bomb them out of existence. So um, long story short, Landsat drones are a nuisance right now because there's too few and their warheads are too small compared to the real dangerous suicide drones like the Israeli EAI uh, Harpy and Harop, which are extremely powerful and dangerous and almost impossible to jam because these are Israeli products, so they're really, really high-tech. Um, yeah, so... Personally, I think the West should get into overdrive to produce more um, systems to counter any kind of drone, because also the Russian artillery drones should be shot out of the sky any moment, any possibility you get. The West isn't producing anymore. So personally, I think the next best possibility is... <coughs> sorry. Uh, to sabotage these factories by, you know, they have lots of fuel there and they have lots of explosives there. And what a shame if some fire were to break out. Oops. So sabotage seems to be the best option for Ukraine at this point because Ukrainians don't have missiles to hit those factories yet. They're working on it. And the West isn't producing enough jammers and modern weapon systems to take these drones out of the, of the sky and active protection systems, newest iterations that the Israelis are producing can also defeat not just anti-tank guided missiles, they can also defeat uh, suicide drones. But you know, those newest version of active protection systems are being installed only on the newest Israeli tank, the Merkava Mark V. No one else has it yet. So um, as said, in that stage, the best way forward for Ukrainians is sabotaging the factories by um, figuring out where's the explosive. Accidents happen, tragic accidents, lots of them. What about drone Hortensia? They, it's some kind of FPV drone. What is FPV drone? Uh, first, per, um, guys, help me out. Is this first person view or is first it first person view? Yes. Yeah. It's a first. It's like in computer games where basically the guy has a goggle on his face and looks into those goggles and sees the same view as the drone. While most other systems, you know, you have <coughs> a screen where you see the drone with a lot of param parameters that you launch it. And the first, the FPV drones have a short range, but they're goddamn cheap. And the Ukrainians have turned them into some excellent systems to take out Russian 
armor and equipment that is close to the front at approximately a price that is 2% of what an Israeli combat drone costs. And that's right, Israeli combat drones like a harpy has a much greater range and the warhead is powerful and extremely destructive. But, you know, the FPV drones that the Ukrainians have and the Russians are now copying are so cheap. And if you hit a Russian tank at the right spot, you can destroy it with such a drone for $1,000. So really, really cheap solution. Problem is the Chinese are producing those and they're selling it to the Ukrainians and the Russians. And if we ever have a war with the Chinese, the Chinese will produce 100,000 of those and throw them at us. So again, the West should produce microwave, laser and kinetic weapons to take out drones by the thousands by now, because if we don't, we can destroy the factories and the depots, but there will still be a lot of losses that we will suffer too. And if we produce that stuff, the best place to test it is in Ukraine right now. So the German Skynex system is in Ukraine. Rheinmetall produced just one as a demonstrator and gave it to Ukraine now. So the Ukrainians can test it and show that the system works because Rheinmetall hasn't found any customers in 10 years. But, you know, maybe after Ukraine shows how good the system works, Rheinmetall hopes that there will be customers because obviously... In an ideal world, for each Western military company, there's one Skynex system shooting down drones out of the sky. Right now, not even the United States has a system to shoot down drones out of the skies on a company level. The U.S. is now introducing two battalions this year of uh, interim solutions where they take a striker vehicle and put a 35-millimeter cannon on it. And in a second step, they will put on some laser or microwave on it and some jammers. But, you know, it's way too few vehicles for now. So, yeah, we need something to counter those drones, uh, all of them, because some drones are used to help target with artillery. We need to take them out. Some drones are suicide drones. We need to take them out. out. Some drones that the Israelis have only job of those drones is to jam enemy air defense systems or communications. Means we need to find them if some enemy of us has them and take them out and so on and so on. So yeah, lots of work that needs to be done in the West and so far, we're not doing any of it. Yeah, this uh, yet again circles back to something which you started out with earlier today. Or that there is no joint procurement because there's also no joint strategy, at least none which has been agreed amongst the partners between the EU and NATO. And that is where it should be vested because it is a European defense. You could say it's the EEA, uh, not just the uh, EU, but be it as it may, those are the ones who should have a vested interest. So we need some coordination in that regard. Absolutely. And we need European companies to be the ones producing it because if we Europeans don't start it in two years' time, we have all to buy it in the United States again, which, as the French says, which, as the French say, truthfully, is uh, always damaging to European 
defense industries because our companies invest in developing that stuff, then no one buys it. And then the Americans build something similar, but slightly better then everyone buys it in the United States. And our companies say, then, why should we develop more stuff if nobody buys it? <coughs> why are we not surprised? Randy. Hi. Um, yeah, I just want to say uh, I'm a, an old infantry officer from back in the day and tangentially involved in the defense sector um, to my family. But um, one of the things that I just wanted to go on with your bait uh, notion um, it goes back even to the Second World War when the American troops uh, were going through France. They were outclassed by the Germans on, the, on almost every weapon system. The Germans were, uh, you know, infinitely better trained, general, uh, the, the combat units, the veterans. Uh, and so the Americans would take an objective and the, by impulse, maybe, uh, or maybe by a Hitler mandate, every time the Germans lost an objective, they had to counterattack. And what the Americans could do very quickly was lay down artillery fire faster than any other country in the war. And they had uh, uh, FOs all over and company level officers could call it in. And uh, so that every time it, every German counterattacks, there's just... A, a dozens of significant encounters I read about of a, uh, Americans take infantry taking an objective, a German counterattack gets broken up by artillery all the time. Um, so in a way, there's some precedent for uh, uh, an infantry artillery kind of system the Ukrainians are using. And the Russians seem to be compelled to stay on the offense all over the place. I think it's political because it doesn't make any tactical sense at all. Uh, this is my first point. Second one is I was looking at Kupiansk and everything to the east is like open fields. So it would be like it's kind of impossible to move up a huge army and surprise anybody on the uh, it's the. Oskrill River, uh, that, that line looks like it would be an eminently defensible and, uh, and nobody would be surprised. So um, I hope that's where they're coming. I guess that would be the dumbest place for the Russians to come, I think. Um, and then, um, well, I, that's basically, basically what I wanted to say. I, I, oh, yeah. Um, the, the fact that the Russians are committing so many of their troops uh, to uh, come in and fill in the lines when this isn't even the major uh, part of the counteroffensive yet uh, suggests to me an element of desperation and that they don't have the confidence in their defensive lines and they don't have the coverage of troops to uh, uh, expect to defend against attacks everywhere. So they're trying to, uh, the only sense that would be is they're trying to take the initiative so they can decide where the battles are going to be, because if they fell back as a sensible army would do and just say, let's wait here in the trenches and, add some more overhead cover and pre-register some more artillery fire and wait for them. Uh, and, you know, it'll be, it'll, it'll make it difficult uh, uh, and take a lot of time and multiple lines. But by rushing everybody to the front, they're thinning out those back lines, throwing in reserve units. And um, I think they're just accelerating the end of the war, you know, against them very dramatically. One thing that I, I was very curious about is when um, 
Pogrosian and, and Wagner took off for Rostov, the, uh, the reserve that was sent after him were the Chechens. So when there's a breakthrough at Bakhmut uh, uh, in uh, Kavishka, uh, the reserve that is sent in to, to try to block it is also the same Chechens. So they, 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 I think they're running out of reserve units they can throw in. And if they send in the Chechens, they're definitely low on people. Apparently, they uh, didn't last very long on the line before they split. So uh, it, it looks like an increasingly desperate situation with the Russian reserves not being uh, everywhere. And another reason why, and the, oh, the 100,000 troops, that's what I was going to say. People are adding up all the whole troops in the sector. And the figure they were using were 100,000 Russian troops between um, uh, Torsky and, uh, 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 and North. Uh, and that's like a, a huge, huge area. That doesn't mean there's 100,000 troops lined up for, uh, you know, uh, uh, a German blitzkrieg, you know, Battle of the Bulge kind of attack. That's, a, you know, uh, uh, miles and, you know, kilometers and kilometers of, uh, of terrain. So there, yeah, there could be a hundred thousand troops there, but they're, they're, uh, they're, they're not mass. There's no big mass. And that's been one of the more misleading things that the uh, media, the mainstream media is always reporting. They'll take that figure and it makes it sound like there's this massive army ready to smash through, but it's spread out over, vast areas and you, you know, uh, minus the conscripts and, uh, in the, in the, uh, units that are, uh, uh, 30 or more percent short personnel, uh, minus a lot of vehicles. Uh, I follow on Twitter a lot and there seems to be a real shortage now of vehicles in the, uh, Russian army because of all the attrition they've suffered and they can't replace them. So, um, I think any of these Russian attacks there, uh, we're seeing, you know, more and more just infantry attacks, which is a beautiful setup for cluster munitions. I posted um, on the Internet from one of the manuals the uh, the spread of uh, the diameter of the blast from the different from different kinds of one five fives, air burst, uh, direct ground burst versus uh, cluster spread, and it is geometrically more effective over a larger area. So it seems like it's ideal for what the Ukrainians are facing now. And as long as the Russians are dumb enough to leave their trenches and run up and try to engage directly, uh, their the casualty rates are going to start being just staggering. Hey, yep. One important point here is um, Ben Wallace said today what I have said before and what people didn't want to believe. The Russian lines that they built aren't manned. Only the first line of the Russian defense is manned. All the rear lines are just built in the hope that the Russian infantry can then run back kilometers and kilometers with their equipment under Ukrainian fire and with Ukrainian tanks on their heels to man the second line in time. So it's completely harebrained to say the Russians have a lot of defensive lines, like some people do on Twitter. The Russians have five defensive lines. Now, a defensive line requires troops to defend it. If not, it's just an obstacle for engineers to breach. And as Ben Wallace today said in, in a conference of, at NATO and what was obvious for some time is that the Russians only have the troops to man the first line and some reserves to plug gaps in some 
platoon-sized or squad-sized uh, fighting positions before the main line. And that's it. Once the Ukrainians are through, the Russians won't be able to pull units back for the second line. And if the Russians would try to pull them back, as you said, cluster munitions would make short work of them. So the Russians are out of troops and the Ukrainians are worsening it. And just someone sent me today that the Russians lost seven cube artillery systems and four rocket artillery systems today. So they lost two batteries of artillery. Um, Yes, two batteries is not that much, but the Russians lost hundreds and hundreds of systems before. And the Ukrainians don't need to destroy every Russian artillery system. They just need a 10, 20 kilometer area where the Russian artillery has been decimated brutally. So when the Ukrainians attack, that there's just a handful of Russian artillery systems left and the Ukrainians can strike away at those at will and annihilate them. So long story short, the Ukrainians are systematically working to degrade the Russians. The Russians are behaving very stupidly like the Germans, you know, running into uh, ambushes and bait. I mean, to put to pull a Uragan long-range rocket system so far forward that you can that Ukrainian drones can spot it, and having so few Russian air defense systems left that those Ru- Ukrainian drones can fly 40, 50 kilometers behind the Russian lines around and zigzag around for hours trying to look for Russian high-value targets shows that the Russians don't have much anti-aircraft systems systems left, way too few to actually cover their front. It shows that the Russians, you know, at the beginning of the offensive, the Russians had like four artillery systems in close proximity because then they could fire from four systems with one calculation of the uh, trajectory and the angle of um, deflection, all this stuff at the Ukrainian units and didn't have to calculate for everyone. And now the Russians are dispersing their artillery and there's always just one hiding alone. But the Ukrainians have such a liberty of flying drones above the Russians now that they can just fly around and fly uh, Taut howitzers, old howitzers, modern howitzers, Tulipan, heavy mortars, Grad launchers, Tornado launchers, Uragan launchers. The Russian air defense is just completely incapable of stopping them. And it very much shows that the Russians are out of air defense equipment and they're rapidly losing artillery systems. And, you know, even if the Russians could produce, as some people claim, a million artillery shells, they cannot, no way. Uh, If you lose all the howitzers you have, a barrel is the most complex thing to produce in a howitzer. So if the Russians lose all their artillery systems, they can never produce hundreds of barrels for artillery howitzers per year. It's impossible. The best countries that can produce them, like uh, France or uh, Slovakians or the United States, they can produce even more than 50 a year because this is such a precision work from the steel that needs to withstand all the pressure from the rifling and so on. So the whole idea that the Russian artillery is strong and stronger than the Ukrainians, no. And the idea that the Russians will 
not run out of artillery. I mean, they ran out of air defense systems. The Ukrainians have so many drones above the Russians. Russian artillery is incapable of hiding anymore. That wasn't possible a year ago. A year ago, the Russians would have shot down most of the Ukrainian drones. And now you basically have Ukrainian drones flying 40, 50 kilometers around behind the Russian lines around four hours and looking for the artillery systems. And not a single Russian air defense system engages them. And when a Russian air defense system engages them, the Russians still haven't fixed the problem that their proximity fuses of air, their air defense systems are need a specific reflection from the target to detonate and all the drones the Ukrainians use are too small and Russian air defense missiles, which the Russians are also running out of, just fly by the drones because the proximity fuse is thinking that's a bird. My target must be further ahead. So uh, the, this idea that the Russians are winning this war is ridiculous since last March. And the idea that the Ukrainian offensive has failed is a completely harebrained idea. And that the Russians have the equipment to withstand it or go on the offensive is completely ridiculous. Uh, the problem is that naturally that doesn't make a good story. A good story is Ukraine's offensive has failed, NATO in trouble. And that's what the journalists write, even though it's not true. And that is ultimately what we're looking for, a little bit of truth and fact in all of this. I was just uh, reminded earlier uh, of the statements by Hanna Maliar um, earlier on Sunday where she highlighted that Ukraine was making significant progress both in, in direction of Bakhmut and around Bakhmut, that uh, in Kupansk uh, they were defending for two consecutive days and heavily so against uh, certain Russian counterattacks. But alternatively, on other um, say attack vectors, they were making progress. At the same time, Ukrainian general staff reported that um, they had gained yet another kilometer uh, going south in direction of Berdyansk, which all is consistent with what you said. Patient, really patient, careful, um, protective of both gear and people, but to the extent where necessary, uh, probing and testing and baiting to tease out the Russian reserves whilst taking out and attriting their artillery systems. Ukraine is making progress, slowly, surely, but they do. And one thing that is important here to mention, the Ukraine's attacking this out, and the Russians move up reserves a lot to try to stop the Ukrainian, even though it's just one or two brigades that the Ukrainians use to bait the Russians. At Bakhmut, the Russians have almost brought no reserves forward because the Russians know the city is strategically worthless while a breakthrough in the south is for Ukraine or for Russia strategically highly important. Ukraine breaking through in the south and reaching the sea is a strategic defeat for Russia and a catastrophic defeat at that. And for Ukraine, it would be a astounding victory that would open the way to liberate Crimea even before Donetsk City. So the Russians are putting their reserves in the south, not around Bakhmut and not around other places. So um, long story short, uh, the Ukrainian offensive is going apace. And as I just read first about um, Ben Wallace's comments, the Ukrainians have not deployed almost none of their 12 
NATO trained and equipped brigades for this offensive because they're waiting and they haven't even yet decided on the axis of attack the Ukrainians because they will look at where they will have decimated, not decimated, decimated means 10%. They will look at where they have annihilated Russian artillery systems and reserves and then will break through there. And yes, the Ukrainians lost some of the best breaching equipment from minefields and so on, but lots of has been recovered. Some cannot be saved because it's burned and destroyed, but you know, every week more material is coming in. And, and that's what it's for, because these these pieces of equipment, especially the ARVs, the demining equipment is actually built to take the hit. This is yeah. what the rollers are for. This is exactly what this is for. Uh, it's just insane that we have so few of them left. Yes, because um, the European nations and most countries in Europe signed the land mine, uh, the anti-personnel and anti-tank mine treaty. And since they basically don't use mines anymore, they thought, you know, everybody else will not use them anymore too. So we can just get rid of our massive engineering capacities to clear mines, which we had in the Cold War except for the United States, which has still a massive capability in its brigades to clear mines. And the Germans are back, basically now paying companies in Germany to rapidly uh, build out of old uh, Leopard 1 chassis uh, mine-clearing vehicles because nobody in Europe has enough anymore and the Ukrainians need them desperately. Exactly. One the, the quick... Belgium, did, did you uh-huh. see this? The, the Belgian guy... Uh-huh. Uh, the, the one who tried to over say uh, sell at an exorbitant price those yep. uh, leopardy ones. Seemingly, there is a discussion ongoing on exactly that upgrade. I was about to give you that because I found it mm-hmm. funny. Uh, this came up on Friday. People were saying that they were looking at actually taking these out because they didn't think that it made sense to make them combat ready, but as ARVs, mm-hmm. perfect. Yep. And the thing is. <coughs> And the biggest danger to ARVs are mines that kill the tracks, but you have the plow or the rollers in front. And the second biggest threat is anti-tank missiles or artillery. Artillery the Ukrainians are taking care of now. And basically for the anti-tank guided missile teams, you have to place a Bradley behind the um, armored um, engineering vehicle that clears the mines and that Bradley basically looks for anti-tank guided missile teams and when he sees them, which is 25 millimeter cannon, tries to kill them off before they can destroy the mine clearing vehicle. Uh, that said, you know, um, some people have said that the cluster munitions are useful of clearing minefields. No, they're not. Um, the cluster munitions are too weak to trigger anti-tank mines. They might trigger some of the... Um, anti-personal mines, but it's so little that you cannot risk moving through such a minefield afterwards. And for that reason, uh, the cluster munitions aren't useful to clear minefields. They're useful to killing uh, Russian infantry, and they're very useful to destroying Russian vehicles that you caught in the open. And they're really, really useful to drop in Russian trenches because it's a psychological weapon also because you have all these things falling into your trench and detonating. Yes, if you're inside a bunker with sands and so on and the grenade doesn't enter, you will survive. 
but I had a psychological effect of suddenly having like 20, 30 uh, grenades in your trench firing shrapnels in each direction. And you know that this can happen again and again and again is an immense psychological toll that it takes on the Russians because unlike the Russian cluster munitions who just rain down on the complete random area because the Russians are so imprecise, I guarantee you, cluster munition shells fired by American howitzers will land the bomblets within a very few yards of a Russian trench and come down in a nice pattern. And the sound of cluster munitions popping off all around is terrifying because a cluster munition creates a thousand pieces of shrapnel and there are 72 uh, shrap and there's 72 cluster munition in each American artillery shell. So you have 72,000 pieces of supersonic, razor-sharp, small metal pieces flying all around you and shredding you. And if you're like a 200 meters, 300 meters away, you're safe. But, you know, you hear the sound and you see the aftermath. So I tell you, uh, horrifying. And it's a psychological weapon too because you know uh, these come in and you don't until you hear normally <laughs> these don't do that because these eject the cluster munitions above you before they even come near you so what you hear is suddenly something <laughs> raining down and then bop, 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 and the shrapnel is flying so the cluster munitions, not good to clear minefields, but they will take, uh, it takes far, far less ammo from cluster munitions that the Americans have to kill Russians in, by mass than with the normal infantry, uh, normal artillery projectiles. So yes, the Ukraine should have gotten that much earlier because it would have helped extremely well against Russian attacks in Bakhmut. Uh, because these were human wave attacks and cluster munitions are excellent at uh, stopping those, let's call it that. And so Ukraine gets now the best possible artillery ammunition to hit Russian infantry and uh, 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 Russian um, massed units or Russian units that are parked or waiting or Russian... Um, let's say, um, hidden positions with cluster munitions. So the Ukrainians will pick up even more the artillery battle and fire much more rounds than the Russians with much bigger effect, thanks to the precision. And thanks to the Russians leave 30% of their cluster munitions intentionally as unexploded ordnance on the battlefield that they act as mines. That also means that the Russian cluster munitions are dirt, doesn't detonate, doesn't kill, doesn't destroy. The Americans try to get 98, 99% of their cluster munitions to detonate to create a much, much higher kill count and to reduce the number of unexploded ordnance. And the American shells are made to not just destroy personnel, but also light equipment like trucks, um, missile launchers, and so on. But they're also designed that if they land on a tank 
or they land on a armored vehicle to pierce it and set off the ammunition inside or set off the fuel inside or damage the optics or damage a part of it so it can't be used again. So the American cluster munitions are some of the best designed and most efficient tools a military has. And honestly, every European country that likes to keep its soldiers alive should, should ditch the cluster munitions treaty because the issue that the treaty was trying to address was the unexploded ordnance. And sorry, people, I mean, a timer, a chip, a timer chip is like 20 cents. You can build a second fuse into your cluster munitions, but if they didn't detonate upon impact, the time fuse will detonate it 20 seconds later and you have zero unexploded ordnance. So European countries should ditch the treaty and start developing it and producing cluster munitions like the Americans, just with a better fuse <clears throat> Sorry, that guarantees that no unexploded ordnance remains on the battlefield. Because that was the reason to have this treaty. And yeah, <clears throat> because the Russians always left 30% of cluster munitions everywhere they went and bombed primarily cities and villages and towns and refugee camps, the Russians with cluster munitions, and left and 30% of those hundreds and hundreds of cluster munitions as unexploded bomblets. So if you have some say in your nation's politics, tell your government to ditch the cluster munitions conventions and restart production of cluster munitions immediately because you will need it if you fight Russia or China, or if Ukraine needs it or another country needs it. And to address the unexploded uh, ordinance problem, which the United States is one or two percent, but like Russia's 30 percent, tell them government to include a timer that once the bomblets are armed, once they're released from their carrier shell or carrier projectile or carrier rocket, put in a time fuse that once the, the detonation happens of cluster munitions, when they come to arrest, make it so that the timed fuse, once the cluster munition comes to arrest and doesn't detonate, 20 seconds later, the timer sets it off to ensure there's no unexploded ordnance and then ditch that stupid treaty because every soldier I know, every general I know hates it because it took their best chance of defeating enemy attacks away. And the people who will suffer from that are European troops who will have to fight off enemy attacks with machine guns, anti-tank guided missiles, hand grenades, and so on, instead of having the artillery plaster enemy attacks with cluster munitions, the American way, the DP ICM cluster munitions, which are so efficient against enemy infantry and enemy armored vehicles. And yeah, so uh, cluster munitions have a bad rep because Russia uses them indiscriminately to kill civilians. And we should not address cluster munitions. We should have addressed that Russia since the 70s deliberately always has been using cluster munitions as a terror weapon against civilians with the intention 
If we kill the families, maim the wives and children, the soldiers at the front will be depressed and will want to go home. Same as the Russians did with bombing Kharkiv with cluster munitions, bombing Chernigov with cluster munitions, bombing Sumy with cluster munitions, bombing Irpin with cluster munitions, bombing Kramatorsk with cluster munitions, bombing Mikolaev with cluster munitions, and right now they're bombing Kherson with cluster munitions. It's all meant to terrorize the civilians in the hope that this will depress and demotivate the soldiers at the front. So what needs to be addressed is that Russia is a, not a civilized country, but it's a butcher shop full of vile, disgusting politicians, vile, disgusting criminal generals, a military who is hell-bent on killing as much women and children as it can because it's impossible for them to actually fight a real military as we see now. Yeah, they can only terror they they can only terrorize civilians, and this is what they've shown, and they've done it last year. The images, and after you said it earlier, I just checked back as uh, to what we had taken in at that time, and both are uh, media friends as well as uh, Roman the firefighter who is directing the I think it's the eleventh district, um, or is it the eleventh? Yeah, I think it's section 11 of the firefighting districts in, in Kharkiv. They had made photos and they were there right in the aftermath of what evidently was um, a cluster ammunition being used by the Russians in Kharkiv in the first weeks. And uh, that is the terrifying thing. The way they are using it is different. It's significantly less, um, shall we say, precise ammunition, and they're only focusing on the civilians. So that's where they believe they can annihilate Ukrainians, which they want to, and where they can create that damage, which they like to wage with their terror campaigns, which is why we're here and which is why we're helping. Right, David? Yeah, no, exactly. And I was saying, what was uh, it was uh, Roman the fireman from uh, Kharkiv. What was his last name? Can you remember? Oh, gosh. Uh, give me a second. <laughs> Right, put you on the spot. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. The bizarre I can remember is Roman, uh, the uh, who, by the way, I do the highlights for everyone. Uh, we have uh, previous Kachanov. Yeah, yeah, sounds 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 like a Ukrainian name. Yeah, uh, I'll go with that, Axel. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I'll remind everyone. So we have uh, previously helped them out, and we do in actual fact have um, several um, uh, uh, things going on at the moment where we're trying to raise some money. Uh, for everyone uh, here. So if you do have some time, have a little bit of cash and you're prepared to spend the price of a pint or spend the price of a cheap bottle of wine or a really expensive bottle of wine, um, that would be wonderful. You can do it on our website, It's uh, which is uh, www. Tell me what the rest is, Axel. MariaReport.org. Yeah, thank you very much. And in there, there's a, don a donate part, right? So... Um, uh, Whatever you can, uh, whatever you can afford, as as Favid says to us, don't give us your rent money because you need that for your rent, right? But if you got anything to spare, that would be fabulous, right? And uh, thank you very much for that. And uh, uh, Thomas, do we have an extra five minutes out of you? Five minutes is okay, but then I have to go to bed because yep. tomorrow I have to do and, and it'll be late. So we got we got one hand. Uh, Redstone has got his hand up. He's been around for a while. So why don't we give uh, uh, Redstone his one shot, one shot, uh, the uh, uh, Redstone, just like Eight Mile, and then uh, we. <laughs> so don't ruin it. <laughs> 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 go for it. 
Thank you, David. Uh, Thomas, is there any possible way that uh, the general public, people like us in the, and I'm not technically OSINT, but someone who's like really good OSINT, can purchase satellite data, thermal imaging data, and extrapolate and compare daytime to nighttime views, where then we'd be able to see temperature differences, which would go, ah, those could be mines or a minefield. Is that possible? I was going to, can I answer that, please, Thomas? Please go ahead, because I'm... So, no, so the answer is no, not from a satellite. Uh, you, This is the sort of stuff you would do uh, from uh, a thermal, from a something that we might be hovering or, or whatever. It needs to be at a certain angle and the rest of it. Satellite, way too far. I know everyone talks about whether they can read the newsprint and the rest of it uh, from what you're reading, at the at, not from a thermal, and you want it at a different angle, really, uh, for us to be able to do that. Uh, so really that this sort of stuff that re this really with the talking about the mine hunting and the rest of it really comes down to uh areas that have been liberated uh, because of the ew threat but there are so redstone if you're on tomorrow i'm going to try and talk about this uh, uh ukraine is an actual fact uh, they've got a uh, um a really interesting piece of kit. It looks like it might be ground penetrating radar, uh, and for which we can they can look for stuff inside a water body as well. Really interesting stuff. I saw it the other day. I went, oh, oh I'm, I'm currently trying to work out how I can speak to the people who are doing it. Thanks. And is there anybody on these spaces who deals with that sort of um, uh, data extracting? Not Not thermal imaging, but just who plays around with that? Is there anybody that we GIS, know? GIS, you fellas? mean? Yes, yes. The, the, I do. Um, uh, the, uh, um, so uh, what, what do you want to know? Uh, I'll just hit you up later in the messages. If that's do it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, DM me. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Oh, Thank you. Uh, and we've got three minutes left. Well, two and a half minutes. I'm a dist. We've got one question left in so we can take Thomas right to the top of the hour. So it sounds like your sound's lost completely there. Never mind. Oh, are you back in the bush, as they say? No, not we're not hearing anything. You're breaking up. You are in the, the if this is a radio thing, we would be going unworkable. Um, uh, the uh, per perhaps we can uh, put it into a DM or something and work it out, Thomas. With that, so we're going to say uh, the. Thank you so much for the five hours of brilliance here. Although, I mean, it's four hours and 58 minutes, but I'm not going to complain. Uh, the, you have been amazing. I'm very, very glad that you got back from your uh, mountain biking. And your, your dad sounds amazing as well. And he's, and he's 77 kilometers or, or whatever. I think you said 77. It's a long way, right? Uh, the, uh, so it's been wonderful. I Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And if everyone would give Thomas a round of applause, where's G-Man to do the sound? That would be wonderful. Thank you, everyone. Yes. And that, that's the, I, I, I unintentionally muted everyone as, as the applause was coming through. Oh, that's a, that failed miserably, my end there. Thank Epic you, everyone. Coordinated. <laughs> Epic coordinated use of the soundboard, Thomas. I promise I will be back as soon as there's some news on the Ukrainian front. And because, you know, th things are going to move. 
but uh, during the week I have we're getting to the fall I have to do some work because somehow I have to pay rent too so we're a bit busy with work right now in the next few days but I will be back we will take questions we will look at Ukraine's offensive we will comment on the sorry state of so many European armies in the future again and again and again and again because it's not going to get better anytime soon we could speak about European marine and navies because those are also disaster zones compared to other countries and we could speak about American troops. I mean, the, the two strongest combat forces on the European continent in NATO are right now two American brigades that the Americans shipped over to armored brigades and both are in Poland and basically because those are there. We know that if Wagner should try something stupid, the United States would be in Minsk in 24 hours and take that city and to occupy Belarus. And no one in Europe can match these two brigades that the United States sent over on rotation. And it's a long way for Europe to be able to match that level and actually be good allies and not just free riders of America's will to defend liberal democracy everywhere in the world. Guys, thank you, everyone. Thank the uh, hosts for having patience when I was in the traffic jam. Uh, I will be back. I love you all, and I love Ukraine most. So, Slava see you soon. Yes. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye-bye.